Welcome, my friends, enemies, anybody who has happened to stumble upon this podcast. This is the Anti-Podcast, episode 002 with Michael Eastman. It's been a crazy summer so far. Uh, lots going on. A lot of interviews already in the can. Lots more planned. I'm really enjoying doing this. The second one with Michael Eastman. I was a little nervous about because... Not because it's Michael, I've known him for about six, seven years now, but just because I wanted to have the best interview possible with him, and I don't think that my interview chops are there yet. But I was pretty surprised, I was pretty happy with the outcome, and I think that's mostly due to Michael. Um, He's just a great talker, great communicator, great storyteller, and we get into a lot of interesting things, especially if you're a photographer or a fine artist. His story is... Pretty unique, uh, definitely has components of being against the mainstream and finding his own way. And it's also a very unique St. Louis story. Um, I mentioned throughout the podcast a couple times that this is not a St. Louis podcast or a fine art podcast or a photography by guys, yada, yada, yada. But it's uh, central to his story, and I think it'll be interesting for a lot of people from here. Um, This was also the first podcast I did outside of the studio, and I kind of like that a little bit more uh, than being in a studio. At this point, I like traveling to people's places. This was recorded in Michael's beautiful home near uh, Del Mar in Forest Park, and um, I enjoy being in other people's elements. It definitely makes them a little more comfortable. Uh, They don't feel out of place. Um, I think it takes a while to build a studio or, or build the or design the interior of a studio to be comfortable for people. So I think you can kind of tell that in his voice a bit. He's just very casual and calm and uh, reflective on his career and what he's doing now. The downside of that is that it was hot as shit in his upstairs room. So we had to open the windows and you may catch an airplane or two flying by. Uh, but it kind of adds kind of a nice ambiance to it instead of these podcasts that are recorded in a can with literally no influence from the outside world. I'm I'm flirting with the idea of picking up more of that to where it's not annoying. Uh, I'm not going to go full NPR. We're not going to have atmospheric sounds and noises, but I don't really uh, mind the airplanes all the time or whatever the sound signature is of a certain place. So uh, it's also easier uh, to go mobile for for the participant. They don't have to worry about traveling. We can relax a little bit more. So it was, um, it's a great interview. I'm really happy about it. I'm really happy about the topics that we covered, how in-depth we got to go. This is a longer podcast um, at two and a half hours, but I honestly think that we barely scratched the surface. So sit back, stand up, whatever it is that you do while you're listening to this podcast, and um, enjoy what Michael has to say. I think you will really enjoy hanging out with the dude as we explore photography, art, living in St. Louis, how that influenced him, and uh, finding success and, and what that means, and and getting into a bunch of uh areas that I didn't think we'd go, yet was fascinated by nonetheless. This is Anti-Podcast 002 with Michael Eastman.
dude. Yes. How's it going? <laughs> good. <laughs> so far, so good. Still vertical. I'm, uh, I'm surprised you didn't respond with dude. Uh, it's your kind of go-to. I'm on a dude quota. <laughs> I think I overdude. <laughs> You've been limited lately? Yeah, I'm trying to limit it. How come? I, you know, I want to lose my vocabulary. <laughs> but dude is so expressive. The thing that's so great about dude is you can say it so many different ways. It can be a yeah. question, dude. Yeah. It can be an exclamation mark, dude. It can be angry, dude. I mean, I would say that's true with a lot of four-letter words, you know, mm-hmm. like shit or shit. Yeah. I think if you go more than one syllable, you kind of lose the expressiveness of whatever you're trying to connotate. Yeah, but you're talking about shit as opposed to talking about dude. <laughs> and the dude has a whole reserve of, of meanings. <laughs> Uh, I, I went to the Dude Fest out in L.A. I just uh, yeah recently, a couple weeks right? ago, yeah. And the weirdest thing was that walking through the lobby of the building, you would see one dude after another, one dressed dude, one that looked like dude, the same sweater, the same <laughs> hair, the same, you know, those uh, those crazy slippers that he wore. Yeah. Um, and it was so weird. It was like being in a in a I don't know if it was a dream or or a a hallucinogenic experience, but it was somewhere in between. Because every time you, you'd walk through the lobby, you'd see 12 or 15 of these guys, <laughs> and you'd just start comparing them, and then it became like, oh, my God, it's so weird. But you do have a passing resemblance to the dude. That was the interesting thing. I was I was clearly not dressed as uh, Of course as not. Dude. Yeah, because yeah. that would be undude-like. No, I mean, you dress your own way, yeah. for sure. But all these people kept looking at me and going, uh... Well, you are the dude. You're not dressed like the dude. Are you the dude? And I just didn't, I didn't, it was so weird because it's, we are similar. My daughter actually worked for Jeff Bridges on that movie. Which one? Uh, The Big Lebowski. Oh, okay. Yeah, she drove him from uh, his home in in Malibu to to the set and back every day for a while. And said that we were, it was very freaky how similar we were. Yeah, because I think that that's, you know, uh, we've been friends now for five or six years. I know you're a fan of the movie. I'm a fan of the movie. And so it's kind of like, which came first? Which dude came first? The, Were they following you around? Somehow sketching your character? No, I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think there's something about the dude that is so laid back. Um, I mean, the good things about him. He was disorganized. He was a stoner. I mean, he was... Uh, <laughs> I, I I discovered long ago that I don't need any help being stupid, so I don't tend to smoke mm-hmm. much like the dude does because, you know, for a day or two, I'm just, uh, half of my IQ points are gone. And uh, Yeah. Well, it's, for me, it's after, the day after. Yeah. Like, during the day of getting high, I'm fine. The day after, I feel groggy, unmotivated, unfocused, mm-hmm. almost like a hangover. But it's not what I understand is typical for most people. No, I think it is. I you mean, do? That's why they wake and bake. Yeah. To so avoid that, they that feeling. <laughs> well, it's kind of like the uh, hair of the dog for the yeah. smokers. Yeah, yeah. So you were always kind of just casual. Your daughter noticed it uh, when she drove him around. Because yeah. Jeff Bridges obviously wasn't the dude before Big Lebowski. I mean, I think some of his roles were a little more intense. Starman. <laughs> Star tied it. I barely remember. Was uh, that with Bo Bridges? No, it was Jeff Bridges. 
What was the piano one? Oh, that was the Baker Brothers. The Baker Fabulous, Bro- Fabulous Baker Brothers. Yeah, no, I love them. I, I think they're. I think he's a good person. I, think, I do too. Yeah, and a I, photographer. He's a very good one. He is. I have a book that he, uh, my daughter Eva gave to me that, uh, well, f- uh, of Jeff Bridges who photographed the Big Lebowski set. Yeah. And everybody on it. And he does that for every movie, and he gets a prints a limited edition of them and gives them to everybody that worked on the movie. And he's shooting with those uh, panoramic... Yeah. They're cool. What? Yeah, what are they? Do you know specifically? No. I don't I, either. I don't know Canon. I mean, I know Nikon and Canon, and after that, I'm done. You yeah. Know, I don't know nothing about Canon. That's good, because this is not a photography-specific podcast. Yeah. Neither is it a St. Louis-specific podcast, but... In talking about where you've come from, I do feel like St. Louis is a pretty big minor character. It's the middle of the middle. First of all, it's not east, it's not west, it's not north, it's not south. It's not a lot of things, but it's something uniquely, and it's kind of frozen in time a bit. In other words, I've had an opportunity to photograph here for the last 50 years almost. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, a lot of things that I photographed are gone, but, but at a slow pace. Other cities, you know, their renovation was, oh, we'll just take this whole street down. Mm-hmm. But I was a- able to photograph some streets over and over again over 20, 25, 30 years. Without them changing very much? Yeah, basically. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it the change was time and mm-hmm. what, what weather does to things and what the wind does to things and what, uh, dro- you know, the sun does to things. So it was sort of like... Uh, a ruin in a sense mm-hmm. that I could watch slowly over years and photograph it. Um, I used to do storefronts. I was looking through my um, uh, archive the other day, a flat file, and I was looking at old photographs that I photographed uh, in the 80s of storefronts. And they're a real um, emblematic of what was going on, the kind of advertising, what they were, what kind of stores were actually still in business. Yeah, And they were, you know, they were real commentary on this place in our culture and others other cities um you know they change so quick and things are torn down so quickly i guess the storefronts represent kind of a a thermometer of what was going on in the rest of the world because those things would change more frequently than the actual buildings themselves Mm -hmm. whereas in new york there is a constant or la specifically too there's a constant um urban renewal knocking down of old buildings Mm -hmm. Um, I think only just now in the past 20 years, preservation has become um, something to care about even more. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think we, you know, we live in a place that we don't appreciate, Americans yeah. in general. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like we want new. But when new becomes uh, basically fast food stores and box, comp- you know, uh, businesses, you, you, you lose all the, 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 the local color of a place. Mm-hmm. the culture of a place and I mean we are the youngest nation yeah and so maybe a lot of that has to do with European countries and and how you go to a European city and it says established 1100 or 1200 or 1400 and so they built these things they built their infrastructure to last whereas you know we're working off of uh you know, 250, 260 years here. And we've kind of been at the tipping point of the industrial revolution. It's easier to get things done. It's not as hard to make a uh, impermanent structure. 
Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot less history in this country to work from and a lot less potential reverence as well. I think reverence, though, is has to do with just a state of mind which we don't have in America for the yeah. most part. We just don't appreciate what was, came before us. So, oh, we want the new. Well, right? and it's that, and it's also not that we don't even appreciate it, but we also have some hostility towards it um, in terms of how things were created uh, sociologically, uh, obviously the slave trade and things of that nature. And I think we're also the, the most self-critical um, when it comes to that respect mm-hmm. and saying this country was formulated under negative uh, auspices and we have to hold ourselves or we have to hold our previous selves in judgment. You don't necessarily pick up on that a lot in other countries. I think there's a, a hyper self-critical look back at how we came into being. Yeah, I guess so. Because well, we want to be the best. You know, we want to be the exceptional Ish, uh, the exceptional country. Yeah, we want to be new. We want to be. We want to do everything right. right. Yeah. We want to make sure we're not offending anybody. And we, but we don't have a very good uh, sense of the past I until agree. it's gone. Yeah, and that's sort of for me what it was about was this place was frozen in time. It's interesting, and it wasn't changing quickly, and uh, and you dug that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you know, it's still, it was still. Uh, a portrait of America, it's a portrait of St. Louis, a mm-hmm. portrait of who we were by the buildings and the condition and what was in the storefronts. And But it, um, I mean, those things changed slowly and gave me an opportunity to, to record them. Now, how long did it take you to realize that? Like, were you, because obviously you didn't start shooting till 25, correct? Or mm-hmm. around about. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, this wasn't a realization that you had, but maybe after 10 years of shooting, you're like, shit, St. Louis isn't changing that much. Well, but I was also seeing buildings that I photographed that disappeared. Okay. Not because they were renovated, just mm-hmm. because they fell down. Right. You know, I mean, and so I was seeing the sense of time. Um, I was seeing the effects of time. Uh, I was very aware of that, but... When things were, you know, for me, when I was a, a, a beginning of, as a photographer, I was looking at other work and wishing that I could be with uh, Ajay in Paris in 1903 and mm-hmm. in the South with Walker Evans in 1930. Um, that part of the, uh, the, the thing that I loved about their work was that they captured a time that didn't exist anymore. Yeah. And so... A lot of times when I went out and photographed, my mantra was, if I were aware of what people 150 years from right now were interested in, mm-hmm. then I would photograph those things because that audience would be interested. Those would be significant. They'd be significant records, historical records. And a photographer, unlike many artists, is really part historian. Sure. So what they're doing is recording a, a reality in time that changes. So, um, you know, that was, that was meaningful for me to see these changes and to record them and to do a portrait of a place like Ajay or Walker Evans did. And, and even though this place wasn't spectacular, like Mm -hmm. it still had its own sense, its own essence, 
its own presence. And those were the things that I was interested in photographing. When I, in, the, in 1999, now I've been a photographer for 25, 26 years, photographing in St. Louis mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started to travel to uh, other places and saw the richness of Italy and, and uh, you know, Prague and et cetera, you know, I, I saw how they, the, the magnificent architecture and how it was cherished and how they were sort of frozen in time, those places. Even though there was renovation and there was contemporary building, et cetera, mostly it was, God, this, this was this was a great time, and we ha- we're proud of it. Yeah, and we we were going to invest in keeping it. When I went to Cuba, it was like my dream come true—the Ajay Walker Evans dream. I was literally in a place that hadn't changed in fifty years. Yeah, um, and and I was able to be that photographer walking through those streets because in '99, not many people had gone. And I had an opportunity, really fresh, fresh snowfall, and there were no footprints in front of me. So um, let's get uh, let's get back to that in a minute, because I want to kind of have some sort of introduction to why you started shooting the things that you did. Um, so you had started in photography because you didn't want to do anything else, or what was the? Were, did you shoot at all as a child? A little bit. Uh, in fact, I can. I still remember the photograph. One of the first photographs I printed. I was at a, a camp for uh, when I was a kid, about twelve, and I went in the dark room and made a photograph of a sailboat. I still remember that print. It's so weird. And then uh, I remembered how to process. I learned that. But yeah. I, I was ADD. If I if I had been a child in this time, I would be walking around with a a drip of Ritalin uh, with me all the time on a, one of those... You know. IV stands. Yeah. <laughs> and because I was just so, like, bouncing around. I had no patience. Uh, I, I have, to this day, I don't, I can't, um, I can't, if you gave me a word and spelled it to me, by the third letter I would be lost. I don't sequence Unless well. it's a number. Unless it's a number. <laughs> I remember my grandmother's phone number from, she's been dead for 50 years. So I rem- remember my student ID at the University of Wisconsin. Did that relate six, to school? 3640157. No. I can't get rid of the numbers, but you, you know, you, you asked me to spell a word that you're, you know, right, reading the letters off. I can't do it. Did that relate to school as well? Or were you better? Oh, yeah, I was a terrible student. I was, I was totally unmotivated. The thing that photography did, and I'm, let's, it's 1967, 68, 69. I'm a University of Wisconsin anti-war hippie. Mm-hmm. I, I did call my dad, uh, I'd never called my dad man. Uh, there was <laughs> you nobody, dude? No, there was no dude then. <laughs> but I never called him man, so I never was fully a hippie, and I still went back and stayed at home on vacations. Um, but I was... And you know, pot was part of my. I was, you know, it was part of my life. I wasn't a complete stoner, but yeah. But it was sort of. I was looking for an alternative route. My dad wanted me to go in his business, which was lucrative, and I would have been probably a lot better off than I am today. Which was what? It was a wholesale liquor distributor. Okay. And he hated it. Yeah. And I didn't want to do something I hated. It was do your own thing. Right. It was the time to choose something that was meaningful to you. 
Um, Did he and, pressure you into taking over the family business, or was he cool? Like nah, he didn't care as much. If the '60s hadn't happened, I would have done it. Yeah. If the war hadn't been there, and I had a, you know, I had a, you know, was I going to cut my hair and join the reserve and work for my dad, mm-hmm. or was I going to try something else? I luckily flunked the physical, <laughs> so I didn't have to really. How come? Well, I had a, I, I, I faked it basically. I had a bad back when I was a kid, yeah, and I remembered it. It was a summer where I was supposed to wear a brace. Mm-hmm. Of course, I never did, but it was on my record, and it was legitimate. As it turns out, I've now had oh, yeah. three back surgeries. So I, you know, even though I, uh, I thought the problem was minor, it wasn't. Was it like a genetic, or was it an incident that happened? Or no, well, I fell once. And, okay, but my father and brothers and all of us have junk. What's called junk backs? Yeah, well, most people do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I. Now I have, you know, fusion on my back with a whole metal apparatus inside me that, you know, doesn't creak. But Do you I, have the rods? Hell yeah. Okay. Was that the surgery that you got kind of after we first met? Yeah. Oof. That's a, that's a intense surgery to go through after 50 or 62, right? Yeah, no, I, I went through f- five years of surgeries. I went from a colon to a semicolon. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. Um, and I, you know, I did back, and I had, then I had a double, bi- almost died, and had a double bypass a year ago. So, um, you so. you did have a legitimate cause for not being able to make it into basic, yeah. and then uh, you decided then to what after that didn't happen. Came back to St. Louis, didn't know what I was going to do. Um, you know, didn't, uh, I was mildly goraphobic, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I don't know where that came, but I used to get anxious when I travel. So I was sort of stuck in St. Louis for the beginning of my, uh, after, after, after college. But what I wanted to do was be a rock star. <laughs> but it, but when I figured out that it was going to take years of practice and me being someone who couldn't Did you commit, play anything? Huh? Did you play anything? Uh, uh, I played. I started to learn the guitar. Okay. I, I once some somebody told me that I sounded like Jerry Garcia on the guitar. Oh, wow. If I was if I was using just one finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think they were referring to the finger that Jerry Garcia didn't have because he has one finger. One finger was yeah. missing. But um, no, I, I. But the, you know, it was like I would lived in a fantasy world. I was Walter Mitty. So I would just sit and daydream all the way through college, through so, high school, thinking about, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I was in a band and I played guitar? And, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I was a shrink at one point? I wanted to be a, I thought, being psych. You know, so I was all in my head. And, and when it came down to, you know, the tire hit the the, <laughs> the, the road, you know, yeah. I, I was like, this is, I don't know. I don't want to do this. This is because I didn't really love anything I was doing. When I started right. photography and I took a picture and I made a print, I was a photographer. Mm-hmm. I had a product. I could do it. You couldn't do that with anything else. Yeah. Now, I didn't realize that that didn't really mean anything and anybody could take a picture as Instagram shows us. <laughs> um, but at the time, it was major for me to be able to call myself a photographer because mm-hmm. I could make a picture. And so I think more than anything, that's the thing that I was most attracted to about photography was the immediacy of it, the democracy of it, anyone could do it, and the ease at which, you know, you could, you know, create, uh, 
create art of some sort. So I started reading Edward Weston's day books like a Bible every night, mm-hmm. a couple pages, and studied it and thought about it and went out and shot with the idea that I was an artist, not a photographer. Do you remember that first instance of uh, having a camera and shooting something and saying, oh, I'm, I'm a photographer now? Um, was there a moment? Was there a shoot? Was somebody say, hey, here's a camera, take a picture of me? I took a took a. This is funny because a friend of mine gave me his camera to borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I was dating a very attractive young woman that um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I had was in love with her. I think I just had to meet her at college. I or? was a, no, it was back here. Oh, okay. I, I know I was lustful. Let's put it that way. And, <laughs> and uh, I I remember saying, "Do you want to, you know, can I take your picture?" And she said, "Yeah." And we went out and I photographed her. You know, and I took. It was no biggie, you know. I was just taking pictures. But when I got them back, this was a very beautiful young woman, and the pictures were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Not because of me, right? I, I, I just I was just taking pictures of a beautiful person. <laughs> so that was the beginning. And then when I printed them and I showed some people, they were all like, "Wow, you're really, you're pretty good." That was the first role. <laughs> so you know, if I chat, if I photographed something else, maybe it wouldn't have been as dramatic as that was but it was so then i started photographing really disciplined and learning the craft sure i was totally immersed and so once i was once i was um in love with the thing then uh uh, the the rigors and the discipline were not a problem did you have a mentor or was it just a case of reading through the books and uh making sure you know that you were uh, understanding the craft well um, I had a, I worked for a photographer who was a, a an Ansel Adams instructor. So mm-hmm. he was really technically. Like that's what he positioned himself what, as? Yeah, he well, he did it. He would actually go to the workshops. Oh, wow. And help teach. There were about uh, 10 of them probably, maybe more over time. It was, you know. So it was sort of like, you know, the the high priest and all the sort of. But he was really. um really knew his stuff, knew the technicalities of photography and what it, how it worked and how to make great pictures and how to make great prints. And I, so I, I mean, he wasn't a very good communicator. He was, you know, he could tell you technically, but he couldn't tell you anything about uh, what a good photograph was right. or emotionally what it meant to him. He was... That, uh, that's a lot was, of photographers. Well, that was Ansel Adams. Yeah. Uh, Ansel Adams used to be a concert pianist but didn't make it and not because he wasn't technically fantastic and proficient but because emotionally it wasn't there that's part of it what you feel about a photograph is transmitted translated communicated in the print i may, and when i have an exhibit especially in now even now uh, but especially in the beginning what struck me was somebody would come up to me and said i love this photograph you know why i love this photograph and i go why and they'd tell me and i'd say well that i'd said that's what I felt when I saw it. And you would never think that that gets communicated. Yeah. And the more, and it's not just, it's not an obvious thing, but it, you know, it's like collective consciousness. We all sort of see, we all want to be different and think we're different. Right. But when it comes down to it, we're all pretty much the same. Well, and that's why we identify with certain artwork too, is because it hits you somewhere, whether it's a book or a painting or a photograph, that it's like, Somebody is experiencing uh, something that you yourself feel that you've only experienced. 
And I, I think the older that you get, you realize that that's maybe not such a unique uh, feeling, number one, but that if you can capture that with your own art form, then it becomes something that is sought after mm-hmm. because it's, uh, you know, maybe a blend of sentimentalism and nostalgia and, you know, feeling as a kid, you know, thoughts that you had when you were a child and dreams, hopes, aspirations, yeah. all of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, when I go out, I don't, I mean, I don't go out much and photograph anymore. It's, it's probably because I've been up and down these streets now for 50 years. <laughs> I still find things, but it, um, but I, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, when I would go out, the thing I would try to look for is what I, something that I felt something about. Yeah. It wasn't what was visual. It wasn't the light or the sun or the color. Mm-hmm. It was what I felt. If I felt something about it, I was going to photograph it. And you'd be surprised how little we feel about things. That's what's <laughs> so dramatic about photography. Because when you find something that you really genuinely feel something deeply and you make a photograph of it, that feeling is translated and transmitted and communicated to the viewer. Even if it's not emotional subject matter. No. And so in that respect, when you talk about Ansel not necessarily having an emotional quality to his music, you think that the perfection of understanding photography helped him better express his emotional side? Or do you find that the images aren't that emotional? I don't think they're emotional. Okay. Yeah, I, I just don't. I, You know, Weston was able to photograph... They're just a, aesthetically a, pleasing or, you know, have all the elements in place. Yeah. Um, they're good. They're great. I mm-hmm. mean, there are other artists, there are other landscape people that I like better. Sure. Um, and, the, you know, for instance, Carlton Watkins was done in 50 or 75 years before Ansel. Yeah. And they were so brilliant because they were a, a historical record done with a crude camera that became very painterly and they had their own look and they really felt... Uh, More impressionistic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so they were they were beautiful, and they had a they had an emotional quality. That Adams's pristine black and white silver prints, you know, although they were really brilliant, mm-hmm. um, they just never did it for me. Weston, for instance, who was my who was my dude. Um, Weston's prints would you know he'd take a he'd take a, a green pepper and make a black and white photograph <laughs> of it. Makes you weep. It's like <laughs> it's like a nude. It's like it's yeah. like pure nature it's all about form and it's about mass and about sensuality and it's a pepper and he saw the world that way he presented things as they were he didn't try to be tricky about an angle or a lighting or something you know it was all about the thing he was photographing that was really important to me it still is so you were learning from the student of a student of Ansel Adams basically yeah and then how long were you doing that before you started either working professionally or photographing your own subject matter that you found interesting? Well, when I first started, you know, I'm kind of, um, uh, I, there's, a, there's a belief in myself that is unfounded. Mm-hmm. And so I went out immediately and had cards printed. <laughs> Michael Lee's was photography. Yeah. Black with white ink that looked like sprockets on the, on the film. After that first shoot? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'm a photographer. And I went to this guy 
uh, and I, I worked with him for as his darkroom guy. And they were doing like the same, you know, the hockey team and a baseball team. And mm-hmm. I was the guy that just they give me a contact sheet circled and would print them, which was good for me because I was really becoming a pretty good printer. Mm-hmm. And I learned, and you know, I have him to look at them and say, "This is too dark, it's contrasty, do this," you know. So he was very helpful in that way. But um, I, I knew right away I wanted to be a photographer. Mm-hmm. So I started. Uh, I bought a camera. Uh, built a dark room, moved back in my parents' house because I knew I couldn't afford to live and do this. Mm-hmm. And I moved in their basement, built a dark room. Big mistake. First dark room I built, I thought, dark room, that should be black, right? So I painted the whole thing black, thinking that's what you needed to do. You turn those uh, those safe lights on, yeah. and all you saw was your hand in the paper. You couldn't find anything in the place. It was, it was so dumb. But did you have light leaks coming in, or no, no? It was, <laughs> okay. it was, you paint a dark room white, yeah, because yeah, those yeah. red those those <laughs> safe lights, you know, they they're at a certain level that they're fine. You want to see where you're right. going. I just look like you know this guy's hands in a print floating <laughs> everywhere. But I. I, so I started right away um, thinking I wanted to be a photographer. And the first jobs I did, uh, because I was lost. Yeah. I mean, I was just didn't know what I wanted and to this do. This was 25 still or 26? Yeah, I was 20, uh, 26. Okay. Um, and and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. But as soon as I started taking these pictures and was actually able to make, uh, be an artist making something, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wanted to do it. I knew it. And so I, I started photographing my f- friends, families, kids. Mm-hmm. That was my first job. The first job I did, I I did uh, my a friend, actually our family doctor's kids, I did their <laughs> portraits. You know, I probably did $5 a piece or something. <laughs> and I, I developed a bit in the fixer first, which meant that they were all ruined. <laughs> And I thought, what the heck? What? My first job was a complete failure. They didn't even come out then, right? No, they were clear. The fixers <laughs> yeah, got that's the, what I thought. And I kept going, well, who, who, who's the guy that switched my developer and fixer? And, and then at some point I realized it was me, you know, <laughs> and it was just me looking for a, somebody to blame. I think one thing to point out, too, is like how much more of a barrier to entrance you know, there was in photography back in the day. In terms of the expense? In, in terms of everything, you know, I think now, like while we're talking about that uh, uh, inability to uh, look back on the history of things, it, people don't really understand how complicated it is to get into photography 25 years ago to much less 50 years ago. Yeah. Well, nobody wanted to be a photographer. That was number because one. Because it wasn't easy. Well, no, it wasn't. Right? No, and I was, you know, my learning curve was, you know, it was was almost directly vertical. I, yeah. You know, everything I did and learned, you know, or tried, I was learning a ton. And it was delayed gratification, too. You didn't have any sort of instantaneous, aside from Polaroids. Oh, no. you. It was pretty instantaneous. And when you think about it, you develop a roll of film. If you, you had your own darkroom, yeah. Yeah, what you, yeah. You had, I did, because I learned darkroom. That's the first thing I, I really learned. But your question was, when did I start to shoot really for myself? Commercially, I started immediately. Because I knew I wanted to make a living that way. So you shot, did you reshoot the doctor's family? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they loved them. And then I got maybe 10 others. And then and then I got uh, the idea to sh- photograph a f- sorority 
local university and I, nice. I and and they love the pictures <laughs> and they started ordering and then they got three and they were you know five and their aunts wanted them so they got eight and you slowly start to understand the business of like oh I can make money for each print cell uh, that I sell yeah no it was great and <laughs> in fact you make more money I didn't make any money as on the shoot yeah I made money selling prints and then the guy um, the partner of the photographer I was working for wanted a com- part of my take and I'm going how come why what do you want what do you want a 20 percent or excuse me whatever whatever he wanted uh he said well I taught you everything I know you know and I said you taught me nothing you walked into the dark room you circled a bunch of contact sheets dropped them in front of me and left (laughs) where you know what do I so I I left yeah I mean it was like I wasn't gonna pay him I made fifteen hundred dollars on that shoot. Oh my god! And then nineteen seventy-two, that was like I was that's, crazy. That's like it was ten times that. Now. It was like ten grand. Yeah. And I mean, I was living, and it was you know, it was like I'm making money, mm-hmm. doing something I love to do, with uh, with what it seemed like an unlimited you know potential, because I was. So at at that point, I was on my own. Built that black dark room. Uh, lived in my parents' basement. Um, my overhead was zero, um, and I did that for about three years. Mm-hmm. And I, I was doing well enough and moved out. But it, it was a good it was a good period because what I started to do was reading the uh, Western books, trying to photograph things, and I started with photographing everything and anything. And I have a friend who just started photography as a an older, you know, an older dude after after his after he retired, and I said to him, I said, I envy you, and he go, why? Why do you envy me? I said, everything you look at is potential. <laughs> you know, I'm you know jaded a bit after this, and I'm not going to photograph that because I've already done it a hundred times and never made a good, you know, that subject didn't work for me. Everything is open to you. Everything is exciting. I'm envious. Um, so in the beginning, I was that guy. But it's only, I mean, to, to be honest, it's exciting to him because he's never looked at things in that way. Yeah, but ignorance is bliss, dude. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. great. He was, he was just so excited about going yeah. out. There was no The magic of photography. Yeah, there was no, I'm wasting my time, you know, all these. So when I started, there were all these voices in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, there were critics, there were gallery owners, there were museum curators, there were my parents, there were his, my parents' friends. I mean, there was like a, there was a chorus up there. It was a Shakespearean, you know, chorus of, of, of naysayers mm-hmm. telling me I couldn't do it or I shouldn't do it or I won't do it. Or, and so that, that uh, conversation. What was your major? Uh, m- business. Business. Yeah, because I was going to take my dad's business over. But when I came back and I had that choice of being, you know, of avoiding the draft and. Yeah. Uh, or working for my dad, I decided not to. I decided to try to do my own thing. But that business side, did that help inform the print sales and how you presented yourself and maybe give you a leg up on other photographers? Marketing it did. Marketing it did. Yeah, because yeah. one of the, well, I'll get to that. But okay. one of the first things I did was self-promote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I made posters of every show I had, mm-hmm. which cost about 200 bucks. But they wound up all over the city and I built the beginning of a, a brand if you will. So that was part of it. But mostly it was um, me trying to become better 
and um, not listen to those voices that were always up there. Mm-hmm. And I will say this, jumping forward, there are very few voices up there but my own. <laughs> but it took 50 years. That's good, though. Yeah, it's very If good. there's more voices up there right now, then, you know. No, then I still get them. I still get, you know, my New York gallery voice, my, you know, the director of the gallery, I get that voice Did, up there. And so it's telling me, you know, I'm not wasting my time doing this or I should be doing that. Or, But for the most part, I'm... Those voices distracted you or were they motivating? Both. Because for me, uh, by the way, the name of this podcast is called Anti. Mm. And it's all about people who have either gone against the flow or figured out different ways. I haven't even told you this. No. Figured out different pathways to success, whatever that definition of success may be. But for me... You know, I was highly motivated by being told no, or that that's not possible. And then I think that is then how I set up whatever I wanted to do, you know, whether it was a company or artwork or, you know, thoughts about religion or anything. It was saying, you can't think that way. That's not right. I'd be like, why not? Yeah. You know? And so I think I like the, um, for me personally, motivation has always come in the form of, negativity towards me Hmm. and saying you can't do that that's not a livelihood you're not going to make any money doing that yeah you got to remember i'm i'm mr um my wife calls me mr placebo (laughs) so you just suggest something to me and i believe it and i (laughs) i can see that and you remember also that i'm also mr fantasy man yeah uh you know from the traffic um you know that I would weave these dreams in my head about, oh, I'm going to do this, and then they're going to pick me up, and then I'm going to go to New York, and I'm going to have this show, and then the museum's going to have a... You know, I remember the first show I had. Uh, so this was... What, what What year was your first show? I had it in 18 months after I started. That's amazing. Yeah. I just went to Washington University. They had a space there. <laughs> I wanted to do a show, and I, I remember putting the show up, and... Um, <clears throat> Really being disappointed that I wasn't, that there weren't 150 people at the opening. I think there were eight. <laughs> and I was really disappointed that they didn't pick me up on the shoulders and carry me out afterwards to celebrate. That, uh, you know, and I had one piece there that was a study of light mm-hmm. where it was an egg, uh, a series of photos of one egg with the light changing slightly. And it was a, you know, like nine photographs across. Sure. And the woman came up to me and said, oh, that's really nice. What would you charge for that? I mean, it was like a, it was, this is 1973, and it was about a 40-inch print by by eight inches. So it was nine uh, uh, five-inch prints? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, or Maybe. four-inch prints. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she said, uh, she said, how much is that? I said, well, it's $40. And she said, $40? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, you know, I mean, $40 was was not a lot of money. It was like, what, 200 or No, it was but it, maybe. Yeah, I would say it would be. It was, you know, it was... For art? Well, maybe it was, maybe I'm wrong, but I always just thought, God, $40 for that amount to work and yeah. that size... And that frame, and the frame was probably 15. Yeah. You know, uh, so, but anyway, I just thought, my God, I said, um, this is not what I thought it was going to be. But it, at that point, what it was for me was it wasn't the, it was, it was a fantasy of what it could be, what I was going to be someday. 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much that people saying, no, you couldn't do it, because I was in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. It just took me a long time to realize, to take the reality in and understand what was what was really required. And I still feel that way. I mean, I still feel like um, I'm going to have the, the retrospective of 50 years of work and all the portfolios that I've that I've created. Well, I mean, it's important, though, to think that way, too, to dream about it in order for it to become something that can become real. Yeah, and but mostly I think what my, my approach to things were always, to, especially to uh, failure mm-hmm. or to not success, maybe that's a better way of putting it, <laughs> is, that, um, is that I just have to get better, mm-hmm. that I'm not ready. Yeah. I'm not as good as I can be. And that was pretty important because that attitude uh, was essential for me to continue to grow and to continue to try things and, and to be really critical of everything I did. That's funny because I feel like you're balancing this uh, big self-confidence with creating your own business card and saying you're a photographer and then also remaining humble enough to be, I'm not that good or I'm still figuring out how to do things, or I still am refining my process. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I I like that duality of saying, here's my business card, guys, and I'm a real photographer, and then still also being humble enough to say, yeah, I need to work on my shit a little bit and make sure it's still good and and never, you know, never saying that you're the best. Yeah, and I'm not satisfied to this day. I mean, I still think... I still feel the best work is still ahead of me. And and it gets more and more difficult as you work because you hopefully get better. Well, yeah. And I think that also you've probably had uh, multiple levels of success, both locally and nationally and internationally. So I'm sure after you have any one of those defining moments of success, there might be a temptation to be like, shit. Time to sit back a little bit and uh, relax, and I don't have to hustle as hard anymore. I mean, are there are there these? There, there's obviously peaks and valleys of productivity and work, but after each success, would you kind of be like, "Oh, I'm good," or would you have more of a? I want more. Yeah, you're like, I, I want, want to keep more. this going. No, I want more. This yeah. is this is great to have a successful show in my hometown. Right, and this is great to make a living in part by selling artwork in my hometown, yeah. which is, you know, impossible. <laughs> um, I wanted to be in a gallery outside of St. Louis. I wanted to be in a good gallery. I wanted to be in a New York gallery. I wanted mm-hmm. to be in the art fair. I wanted to be in the best art fairs. I wanted to be in the best gallery. I want a museum show. I wanted to be in a, in a really big museum showing big work. Mm-hmm. And so it was always the carrot in front of me. That just kept driving me on, and the carrot turned out to be being better, mm-hmm. being going for you know not being just good, not being very good, but trying to trying for greatness. And it you know it's it's a good goal. I, I don't know if I've achieved it yet. I mean, I think that um, you know I've been lucky in being in the right place, like Cuba, at the right time. But and when I look at my my body of work. Um, it's funny because when, you know, I was, you know, we talked earlier about being a marketing guy at a university and how did that help? It it helped me in terms of knowing the importance of reaching out, of getting the work out, of 
you know, being brand conscious, not sending too much work out or too yeah. sending work out too early. Um, Which is something that a lot of modern photographers could take a lot, yeah, well, learn a lot from today. Well, it's just, you know, you just want to make sure that it stands the test of time and you're, you you have to be, I'm more patient than I, w- I was. You have to disappear for a little while almost in order to, um, it's kind of, when I was in uh, bands, we wouldn't play that often because we found that if you play often, less people come to see you. But if you played four shows a year, once a quarter, then every show is going to sell out. Right. As long as the music is good. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah. so I think that there is a balance in terms of uh, not letting people forget about you and then also having them want more. Yes. Um, yes, there's no question about that. Also, there's just a, there's a part of being patient. Mm-hmm. I mean, I need to put work aside for a week, a month, a year. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I, I just, you know, and, and then because I hate what I just did. Right. <laughs> and I think it's stupid or I think it's not very good or it's, you know, it's not, it's beneath what I've done. And when you're comparing it to, you know, Havana in 1999, mm-hmm. that was a pretty amazing place to be. So if I'm photographing, um, nature or landscape and I'm trying to do different kinds of prints um, it, it, it's they're new mm-hmm. then when I look at them for the first time there's a part of me that just completely doubts what I'm doing right and just think this is there's nothing here um, and um, and then you you put them aside for a while and then you you know then you look at them about a month or a year in some cases five look, years or five years <laughs> and you look at your old stuff and you go Damn, <laughs> that, that, those don't suck. And I remember, you know, one of my most important mentors and relationships with William Gass, the writer, mm-hmm. and he lived across the street. Yeah, and he would, you know, I mean, it was it was we'd go to lunch all the time and we'd talk. I'd show him work, and I remember him saying, you know, I, I looked at an old piece that I had written, and I said, he said it wasn't as shitty as I remembered, <laughs> and you know, this is a guy that you know. Did that wrote for 75 years? He died just a couple of years ago at 94. I mean, I would you would call him a uh, a writer's writer, probably. Yeah. Nobody knows who he is, right? But the ones that did know his na- that did know his name, mm-hmm. I would know was there were serious writers. The it, fir- was, it was like a a, 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 a Rorschach test. They got it. No, a litmus test. They knew immediately. Yeah, litmus test. I knew, I knew immediately that they got it. I. Uh, it's funny because I obviously knew he was your neighbor after being friends with you for now six or seven years. And uh, the first time I've heard his name mentioned in pop culture is by Jeff Tweedy uh, from the band Wilco, who was also somewhat of a St. Louis resident and uh, grew up in Belleville. You familiar with Jeff? Mm-mm. Okay, you know Wilco, the band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they played around Delmar quite a bit at the original Cicero's, which actually was that on Delmar, the one I, that burned down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, I know that there was an original Cicero's. They moved a couple. Yeah, a doors couple times, down. and he was the. Uh, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone or seen anyone mention William Gass was Jeff Tweedy, which makes sense since he has some sort of uh, 
uh, localized uh, interest. Um, and I am still borrowing <laughs> his novel, The Tunnel, from you. I still yes. have that one. Don't worry about it. It's not lost. No, I'm not worried. Um, I'm never going to read it. I think... <laughs> I thought you had it once. Oh, or started to. I've got a books on tape that he did. Yeah. And I'm just waiting because it would be painful for me to hear his voice because he reads it. <laughs> oh, I hear it. you. Yeah. So at some point I'm going to listen to the whole thing. I'm really looking forward to it. It's such a layered form of writing from what I understand. He's almost writing as a writer in his novels, experiencing something else as a child as well mm. to where it's like, you know, it, it takes a lot to get into. It takes a lot of focus. Very difficult. Very, very difficult. It's like choice. But regardless, you had someone who also had found some sort of acclaim living in very close proximity to you and who could also understand what quality work looked like. It was, it was important. Which is huge. No, it was huge. Because, so, you know, he would say he couldn't understand why I wasn't the most famous artist in the in the in the world because he just everything I showed him. He, well, that's kind. That's awesome, though. Oh my God, are you kidding? I, to have I, another artist be your cheerleader. I, as I, well. I, it was you know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I sometimes wondered. Of course, I sometimes wonder if he knew what he was talking about when it came to <laughs> photography. Because if he liked me so much, maybe he didn't. You know, self doubt. Yeah, uh, but um, it was. It How was, old were you when you met him? Uh, 45. Okay. 42, right in there. I moved in across from him in 1986, 87. So I was 40 years old. And I did a book on the park mm -hmm. um, because another mentor who was a Duchampian scholar, Pete Stiefel at WashU, mm -hmm. and was dying. And I was shooting pictures of the park and printing at night and bringing him by to him in the morning to mm. show him because he was always looking at my work, wrote about my work. Um, and I would show him these pictures and he, his wife claimed that it made his death easier wow. because he was engaged in the process of art, seeing it on a daily basis. And, um, and it was a series of black and whites had done at night. No, I, I printed them at night. Printed because, them at night. And then brought them back, dried them and brought them back in the morning over about a two or three week period. Every day I'd go out and shoot wow. first thing in the morning, uh, develop the film, uh, bring the prints that I had done the night before, mm -hmm. and then it, um, would develop the film, print them, let them dry, bring them the next morning to Pete. So at the end of this tour... Because th why? He was doing a he project? Would, he was dying. Oh, so you were just doing it as a kind of way to engage him, yeah, and a way to be involved with him in the the activity that we love both so much, yeah, which was talking about art and mm -hmm. responding to the to art, and you know he was a huge supporter, really wrote some beautiful uh, essays about my work, and you know it took me took me very seriously, and when he died, I had this stack of prints about six inches high, eight by mm -hmm. ten prints. I said, what am I going to do with it? And so I didn't know. I knew Bill Gass. I knew his reputation. I knew he lived across the street. Mm -hmm. We kind of waved. <laughs> um, and uh, I went over to him, which was a very difficult thing to do because he was you know, such a giant in, 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 uh, in, in terms of how he was seen by people that I respected. And I asked him if he would be willing to write something about 
these photographs because I wanted to try to do a book on the park. It's called Forgotten Forest, and um, this local city park, Forest Park. And he wrote this. Was it in decline at the? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Forgotten Forest. So yeah, you you had done the series on Forest Park, which pales probably in comparison to the status that it's at right now. Yeah, uh, it didn't. I didn't. My book and my work and his essay didn't make the park better. Yeah, but it was timely. Was it journalistic in a way? You would say. The photographs were definitely about decay and about, yeah. you know, the beauty of that place and a lot of the structures and torn concrete and falling, mm-hmm. crumbling walls and crumbling bridges, etc. So it did it did point it out. But there was a movement going on at the time to to redo the park to to this, get it up to, to st- what year again? Eighty six, eighty seven, okay, eighty eight. Forest Park Forever was just becoming yeah. age. Yeah, um, so. It was just really important to do that at the time for Pete, and then turned out to became my new mentor became Bill Gass, who wrote the essay. Right, and um, you know it was a it wasn't a success financially. It was it was maybe a success in terms of um, um, just as a project of love and respect for Pete, and and also a way to be introduced to Bill because mm-hmm. that was the beginning of a relationship that lasted uh, almost 35 years. So uh, you had this period of hanging out and, and working with these esteemed artists. What happened in between um, doing uh, your first gig all the way to having your first show where you sold your prints for $40? I didn't sell any prints. Oh, they didn't, she didn't buy them <laughs> no, for 40 bucks. Nobody bought anything. <laughs> Was, she thought that. Wait, so did she think the price was too high? Or way too, too high. Oh, see, I thought that she thought it was too low. No, no, she thought it was exorbitant. <laughs> I was absurd. What was I? What was I thinking? Who did I think I was? It was. It was, it was low as, you know, it, was, it didn't feel too good. <laughs> All right, that makes more sense now. So, how you started to dive more than into commercial photography. Yeah, commercial work is where I made the living. I knew I wasn't going to sell artwork. I mean, nobody sold fine art back then. Yeah. I mean... Um, well, especially locally, probably. I mean, well, you know, I, when I first started, I had an opportunity to buy a portfolio of 20 of Ansel Adams prints for 1200 bucks. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's probably worth, oh, God, I don't know, three or $400,000 now. But he wasn't, I mean, he didn't really have his... He was selling prints. But his huge surge of popularity didn't come until the 90s. Yeah. Right. Well, this is 87, 88. Okay. So it was kind of ramping up. Yeah, it was ramping. He was was selling prints. He was the guy. Yeah. And um, I didn't do it. I mean. Yeah, because, I mean, I I regret not buying artwork from five years ago that is probably worth 10 times what it was when I could have bought it. Yeah, but I didn't. I took that $1,200 if I had it. Yeah. And I spent it on my own work, mm-hmm. my own equipment, my own That's pretty badass. dark room, my own cameras and lenses, and I made way more than three hundred thousand over over there fifty you go. years. Yeah. So it was turned out to be. I mean, when I tell people that, and they go, "Oh my God, you, you dumbass!" You know, <laughs> I go, "No, I I turned that into. It's like you know, if you get a starving man, you give him a." I don't know. Right, the fishing story. Yeah, the fishing, <laughs> fishing rods that they can catch. Teach a man fish. to fish. Yes, right. He feeds that one. himself. I love to fish. Yeah. Um, 
but anyway, no. So I I started um, in the early early days. I was very focused on shooting everything, and then I was very uh, interested in um, trying to create a body of work that was my own. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed to me that that's what everybody was doing. That you both commercially. And artistically, correct? commercially less because yeah. all at that point, if you could shoot, um, I was shooting whatever people paid. I was doing interiors actually for a magazine, which I got five dollars for every picture that was published. So I had a bunch of hot lights, a yeah. tripod, and a camera with a wide angle lens. What kind of magazines? Like it was like a, a it was like. Apartment living was what it was called, and okay. it was just shooting interiors of apartments all over. And was that your first introduction to shooting interiors? Yeah, and okay. I was. It was funny because I wasn't very good at. it. I didn't have a view camera. I used a thirty-five millimeter. Yeah, but I just squared it off the best I could and got a pretty wide angle on my on my knicker mat at the mm-hmm. time, and then I printed it myself. And you know, I was doing anything. I was doing stuff for YMCA's. I was doing PR shots. I was doing portraits of of people I was doing interiors I was doing food flowers everything I was just anything and so I was learning as I went along everything by myself did you have any kind of inclination towards a specific subject matter I mean were you thinking at the time like man these you know these interiors suck but I like the idea of these of interiors no no? nothing yet no no at that point I was just trying to make a living yeah and whatever they wanted me to do, I was more than willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Easter egg hunt, right. kids running, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, and I was doing, I was like that guy I described earlier. I was the beginner who was shooting everything. Yeah. And at one point, I think I remember photographing a painting of, of leaving the job where I was a darkroom guy and f- looking at an old painting that was sitting on the side of a, I remember the still. Mm-hmm on the side of the, the garage. It was inside, but it was definitely, you know, getting weather. Mm-hmm. And it was, and I remember taking a picture of it, a little abstraction of it. And that was sort of the beginning of, 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 of um, being interested in abstraction yeah. and being imp- interested in painting as a photographer. Were you squared away on it, or was yeah. it a, like no. a drastic aim? No, okay. square, just like photographing a painting, sure. like a copy picture of a painting. Mm-hmm. So I was just on it, and and it was... So basically, I love painting, the idea of it, but I couldn't imagine waiting for paint to dry. Yeah. I was too ADD. Mm-hmm. Was, the idea of that was like, I, I did no patience. I had no discipline. Um, and so... But the idea of taking pictures of things like that were photographic, but also that were about painting, about, yeah. about fine art. So it, in the earliest times of photographing, that was sort of part of what I was doing. So what I started photographing was, initially it was nudes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just a whole nude. It was parts of the body. Sure, It was very formal, very abstract, kind of sensuous, but not sexual. Mm-hmm. So you didn't see hands, you didn't see heads, you didn't see anything except for shape. Almost as landscapes. As landscape, exactly. Then I started double exposing them and making, you know, in in printing them, I would drop them on top of each other, Mm -hmm. 
double expose and then blend, print them light enough so you didn't see where it joined. Oh, interesting. And they were beautiful. They were like, looked like they were marble. And, but they were very symmetrical because of the way I was, you know, I was using the same in, image and flipping it. Yeah. So those were really cool. That was one of the first shows I had uh, in, the, um, in the early 90s. Um, and, um, and that was low. No, no, not in the early 90s. Sorry, I just jumped 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> in the 70s, like 78, 70. You know, those first three or four or five or six years. And I had a show of those. And then I started doing, um, I started working with these things. And then, then they started getting weird because then I wasn't flipping the same image. Mm-hmm. I was taking other images. And, I was tw- and it was starting to get really contorted and kind of bizarre. <laughs> Maybe I should have kept doing it. But at that point, I thought I was done. And that was really the first body of work where I went through from the beginning Got a, had an idea, uh, you know, really observed that idea and really tried it in every which way I could think of. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the way I work, you know. It's yeah. like get an idea, try to do it, try to do it every single way you can think to do it, exhaust every possibility, be really critical of, uh, uh, of what you're doing, try to make the best prints possible, put the prints down in a group and look at the relationship and learn from that, maybe show them, which I did. Uh, not very successful, but uh, in a gallery, there was just a photo gallery just starting out. That didn't Did you last sell long. any at that point? No. no. <laughs> I didn't sell any work until I was almost 60. Fine art. Uh, what? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> it's true. I thought you were selling when you were 50. No, I, maybe a piece in here and there, but basically I did not start making any money until I was close to 60. Wow. 50 is when maybe I sold a few pieces. I just know that 50 or around 50 years of age is when you said you were done doing commercial work, right? Or was that 60 years of age? It was a, a long, it was a five year, you know, sort of I can't transition. remember, was that 01 or 2011? 95 was when I started, um, really started selling, 97, 98, 99, yeah. 2000. So 2000, that was 28 years I was in it and I started it. At 25, I was uh, 55, 53, 50. That's, a, you know, that's something I find extremely interesting as well because uh, I, I was thinking about that on the way over here and about um, how you found success doing your art more so at a later age. Fine art. Fine art, yes. Commercially, I was doing really well. right. All the way through that period of time until nine eleven. Right. Yeah. Specifically, fine art, and um, how is you know I, I've always been attracted to that idea. I don't know if it's because I never have done anything uh, of great remark up until now, or not even yet. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, I think it's more of a you know it's it, it's more appealing to me because it's not having that early success of doing something great and then trying to follow up on it. It's like slowly beginning to refine a giant sculpture of your body of work and realizing why it becomes good. You know, I I say I've been shooting since I was 12 and I now feel after 20 to 25 years of shooting that I actually know what I'm doing Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to having a concept of what I'm doing. You know, I understand like the ins and outs. I've had the failures. I've shot things I thought were interesting um, only to realize that they definitely were not. I've had the ability to self-reflect. 
shoot, shoot an event or a country or whatever you have you, and then come back to it three, four, or five years later and say, oh, there is actually something good here. But to me, I think that it takes, personally, and obviously for you as well, it takes you a while to determine if you like what you have photographed or to uh, uh, feel confident about the work that you created. Like you, you talk about Bill uh, looking back at his old writings and saying, this wasn't that bad. Yeah. And so that's an interesting concept to me just because, you know, I, I like the idea of working throughout my entire adult life. So, you know, basically I think it's expectations. They're very, 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 very high. And I think self expectations. Yes. Yes. And you think you know the the the, the more success you have, the higher the expectations. Mm-hmm. It it works that way. Not for everybody. Well, for for me. For, yeah. But you know, yeah. I guess some people, you know, stop or slow down or feel satisfied. I never have. I still don't. Yeah. You know, I think I wouldn't be very happy if I didn't get up in the morning and think the best work was still ahead of me. Well, I think that that's what happens when people do find success at an earlier age. Not everybody, obviously. You know, there's David Bowie and the Rolling Stones. But uh, uh, I think that in some respects, they have this mindset of retiring. And they're like, well, I've done it. Now I'm going to retire. You know, whether they've gotten personal success or acclaim from others or financial wealth. And so then I think that it's harder for them. I think it's better to have this kind of incremental success. Early success is tough. I think success in general is the most difficult thing for an artist to overcome. Yeah. And I've seen it time and time again where somebody is just like on fire and then boom, they're burnt out. Yeah. And I, I, when I started, there were a lot of photographers in St. Louis, all over the country, all over the world that were way better than me. Yeah. But nobody stuck with it like I did. Nobody uh, pressed forward. Nobody was as disciplined as I was. And persistent, yeah. And was willing to try things and never really satisfied with anything I did. Who were some other um, artistic photographers in St. Louis? Because, you know, I'm not trying to toot your horn, but like you're pretty much the lone wolf. I can remember when somebody, um, I think it was my assistant at the time, said to me, you're the, you know, you're the best photographer in St. Louis. And I looked at him and I said, dude. You want to raise? <laughs> no, no. I'm shooting for a little more than that. Because being the best in a... In Geographic a, location. Yeah. it's yeah. The, I want a bigger audience. I want, I mean, I want to be uh, known in other, other places. I want people to see my work. I, I want a bigger audience. Because what you're doing is you're trying to communicate something. And right. th- an audience is important for that. I mean... You can be your own audience. Maybe mm-hmm. your best audience or your worst audience, but you don't want it to be the only audience because then you're not really in the world. Right. And you're not, you know, that woman that was um, discovered recently that had all that work? Oh, Vivian Meyer. Vivian Meyer. Yeah. You know, and she did some really interesting things, but you can tell that it became, um, that there was a point because they never were out in the world and she never had to be, to face people's opinion of the work, it, it became cyclical. Mm. The same thing she was doing sort of over and over again. Mm-hmm. And she was copying things she had seen. There, there were, there's some remarkable photographs, as much about the time and place and what she photographed. Mm. Um, but, but they could have been so much more 
and she had an audience, and she had to defend her work. Well, and she had like to talk she, about her work. It's like she's shot. I mean, it's stunning work. Obviously, anyone that's ever seen it can agree with that. But I think it's uh, interesting that the body of work all fits within one theme. Yeah. You know, it never um, evolved. Never developed. Yeah. It never moved moved on. It Which never is, changed. From my understanding, is part of you know who her personality was and. Yeah. What she, which is interesting because I think it, it shows that it was a very personal act for her. She never intended to show it, which is why the work is so very strong in some mm-hmm. ways. But it just never progressed and never evolved from that, um, from that format that she was used to. And there are other people that did it better. Yeah, I mean Lee Freelander, mm-hmm. you know, just has just hundreds of images that are sort of like that. I yeah. mean, not the belittle what she did because it was an amazing accomplishment and of work in a vacuum was also and he shot the americans correct yeah, yeah. no no that's robert frank robert frank Sorry, lee freelander did just a ton of things freelander a lot of window reflections a lot of really bizarre sort of um, american american vernacular right on so um we can we can touch back on that topic but it uh, uh chronologically you had then made a name for yourself working in commercial photography. You had also worked for yourself, developing your artistic side of what you were trying to express. Um, tell me then, what was uh, the first body of work that started to take off? Was it horses? Um, or that found some sort of outside of the yeah. tribe of St. Louis well, success? That, was, that took a while. Because your was, commercial work, still you were at, uh, you worked on the coast, correct? Like New York and L.A., or were you mainly working out of St. Louis with headquartered companies? Um, you know, I'm trying to think when I started. Um, about ninety four, ninety five, I started to do have real national success. Mm-hmm. I worked with an ad agency that was in town that was very hot nationally, yeah, international core, right? Core, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we was written up in uh, communication arts and after image, and you know, all the publications. And I was getting calls from all these agencies because I was doing the work that Core was turning into their ads. And yeah. So I was the guy who was. Sh- photographing real people doing real things because that's who I was Mm -hmm. when they asked me to photograph um you know a bunch of dairy farmers which was a really successful campaign um I said I don't want models I want to just shoot the real people and they were you know they were of the same mind that that's what they wanted which wasn't necessarily the uh the standard operating procedure for photographers right no I mean especially at that time like yes yeah because at that time, you know, it was like, I remember, you know, I was a, I'm a fly fisherman and I remember looking at magazines with a fly fishing ad mm-hmm. and there was some doofus there with, with a vest on and a hat and an Orvis <laughs> this and a, and, and he was a model. He was a model. That guy, right. that guy wouldn't know what to do with a fly rod of you, you know? <laughs> and so I realized that the people that I knew yeah. that were fly fishing guides in Montana especially, you know, their hat used to be red. Now it was sort of pink, but almost gone. It was torn up with hooks from hooks and from the sun, and their skin was, you know, they had the white on their nose and uh, the, to protect themselves. But basically, they're, they're, they, were, they were real. Which I think is a very original idea if people can think back to the mindset of the 90s. 
you know, of yeah. more of a hyper retouched sensibility. And you have this uh, ad agency and photographer working together to kind of express more of an authentic, uh, more of an authentic authenticity to these crafts that they're shooting. Yeah. You know, and so like you told me before that you were mainly natural light when you were shooting these kind of industries and professions. Yeah. Which is still pretty fascinating even in today's markets. Well, I, yeah, and I still am that guy. I don't like right. lights because it's always, you know, there's, there's always there's a logic to light Was and to reality that when you cross that boundary, it becomes fairly apparent and... And there's a dishonesty about what you're doing. Was it because you were shooting those interior shots all blown out with lighting? And you're like, God, I don't even know what the fuck I'm doing using all this lighting. You prefer the natural, you shot that one painting. Oh, those, yeah. And Uh, then was it like, well, I I can attribute this to my commercial side. I don't have to use natural, or I don't have to use fake lighting. I'm just trying to figure out the process from which, A, you learned photography b you shot what you did to get paid c you began to develop uh your own signature mm-hmm. and then d how you have still gone about that today so I, i'm really interested in the progression of working and then pinpointing what it is that you wanted to shoot content wise and how you wanted to shoot it so i'm looking for some kind of like common thread of saying yeah, you know, fuck lights. I wanted to shoot at natural lighting. Um, maybe it was easier to shoot on location without lights. Of course it is. Yeah, absolutely. I used a tripod. Right. I mean, everything I <laughs> shot was on a tripod. Yeah. So everything was low light. And I was always shooting uh, in, in areas that would take... You know, I always say to somebody that's learning photography, it, you know, if you want a glass of water, you can turn the faucet on full blast for a second, mm-hmm. or you can... And, and you get a full glass, or you can let it drip overnight and it'll be a full glass. It's the same with light. Yeah. So I was always looking for situations that were available light in my own fine artwork mm-hmm. and try to make them pretty dim, just open a window maybe behind me. And there was enough light in the room that if you waited a minute or three minutes or five minutes exposure yeah. on a tripod without anybody moving, you could make a photograph that was pretty amazing. How hard was it, though, to get these people to stand still that weren't models? This was fine art. I said that oh, was fine I'm sorry. Art. Okay. That was fine art interiors. With, 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 um, You're talking about the nudes. No, I'm talking about the interiors I shot. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Just generally speaking, that's sort of what I did that nobody else did, mm-hmm. was that sort of long exposure in low light right. with available light. Yes. Um, that came from me photographing... Um, Commercially, I mean, I did studio work. I was a really good studio photographer at one point, and really, you know, you did shoes, right? I did shoes forever for brown shoe, wool shoe, brown shoe, yeah. and um, you know, it was crazy because creatively they didn't they they would bring layouts over, and I paste them on the board, take my camera and put a piece of acetate, take a sharpie and draw exactly where everything was, <laughs> and then I would spend the rest of the week shooting all the shoes on all the pages of these layouts that had been improved and oh had no God. room yeah. for any kind of moving or any kind of change. They brought the props, the sand, the background, the shells, whatever it was, <laughs> and that's all I did. And I thought to myself, man, this is boring, <laughs> but I sure hope it goes for another week because I'm getting paid 
right. a, a lot of money. And it turns out that that was the beginning of my commercial success. Mm-hmm. And I was doing six weeks a year and making enough money and to live on and bought a house where my mortgage was $172, which of all things that I learned wow. in college yeah. and as a Jewish businessman, <laughs> that low over, I'm allergic to overhead. Yeah. And at the lower overhead you can be, the more freedom you have. So yeah. that was... I, I have the same understanding. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> as an Irish I, businessman. <laughs> it, it worked. Well, um, yeah, it works. It yeah. worked. So that, and then so when I was doing, so I got to be fairly good at understanding what, you know, and it was very complex. I was shooting eight by 10 transparency in a studio. Mm-hmm. I learned how to soften lights because an art director that worked in Chicago came back and said, quit using those hot lights and make a hot light box. Like a light box. What is that? I mean, so I had some luck along the way and I was, did they manufacture those at that time? No, All you right. made, you made a box. You well, took like uh, wax paper or mylar. Something or, I yeah. made the cardboard and shine the lines up. But then I did, you know, I started buying the cinematography lights, the things that were from the movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Mole Richardson's a big softbox. Yeah. I had a bunch of lights. Still do. I still use them when I have a need. But I really learned what light was and how to do artificial light in a studio, which was very helpful. Because yeah. you understand light and you understand exposure and you understand reflectors and you understand, you know, all kinds of things that... Um, so those were skills I had. And when I started shooting for core, mm-hmm. it was ma- basically me shooting. Uh, I, they said to me, I said, what do you want me to shoot? They said, whatever you want, however you want to shoot. And I'm thinking, this was just when I had started to go to Europe in the 93, 94, 95. And I was, you know, he said, just think of like you're in Spain or Italy or something. And I'm, I'm at, a, at a dairy farm and there's a manure Uh, you know, like storage facility where they're putting all the manure to recycle. And I'm going, and I take a picture of it and I think, well, there it is. There's a, there's the tower of the leaning tower of shit. shit. (laughs) (laughs) But it was basically, they gave me permission to do whatever I wanted to whatever I saw. So my, my approach was give me two cameras, one with a wide angle zoom and one with a telephoto zoom. Give me an assistant or two and load those rolls when I'm done. Just let me hand it to you, and I keep. And I'm going to shoot those people doing whatever it is they're going to do. And I'd walk on the set, which was basically a farm, dairy mm-hmm. farm, work with the people, and they'd say, "Well, what do you want me to do?" And I'd say, "What are you doing today?" So, well, I got to fix that fence in back. So let's do it. <laughs> so I would follow them around and photograph everything they did. It almost seems too big, too good to be true in some respects because it's like. You had the dream client giving you freedom of artistic choice, and then you had people just going about their business, yet it all came together. Yeah. Did your what you shoot help dictate what their ads were about? To some extent, I gave him an edit that was huge. Mm-hmm. And I was also, again, another Jewish businessman that realized that most of my money was going to come from the markup on film. Yeah. Not that I was shooting things... Just so that's a, why you kept shooting. You no, know, it wasn't, but but it turned out to be lucrative because the day rates were good. How they many rolls excellent. would you shoot? Oh, I would give them a library of photographs, hundreds of thousands of not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of images. Sure, and and it was all shot on medium format, six four five. And so, how much did that, how much did a roll cost then? Probably. Th- 
12 bucks to get process and contacts. How much to buy? You mean how much to buy the actual roll? Three, two, three, four. So bucks. 15 to 20 bucks a roll? Yeah, in terms of contact and film and process. Wow. And you yeah. shoot out. So how much would, I'm just curious. Hundreds of rolls. And this would. Books it, full of. <laughs> Binders full of contact sheets, but they. But the thing was that they they would look through it, and you know, they it was before we we sold usage or much usage usage um, was the beginning of it. But the thing was that they'd have hundreds of ideas, and they based the ads hundreds of photographs that they had ideas of how they might make them mm-hmm. into ads. So yeah, they definitely they had a theme. It was usually a headline that had to do with you know. Honesty is working a day, you know, whatever. Some some line that was pretty, uh, you know, there was good lines, mm-hmm. um, different by design, things like thought-provoking lines, meaningful lines. And they had those ready before you shot? They had an or, ideas concept, yeah, and okay. then I would make them, and then they'd make the ads. And it was, you know, it was a t- terrific couple, three years that we did it, everything together. And we did a bunch of stuff. I did a golf series where I shot with a wide-angle lens lying on a, green with these people putting it was mm-hmm. you know just giving them he said we want a lot of blue skies you know that's we picture this as green and blue and you know, so they gave me some direction but it was open completely to interpretation and i would just try everything i could think of what about the uh, jack daniels work too like that was uh pretty iconic in a way was it i was the jack daniels work iconic before you guys started Oh, yeah. Working? It was all black and white. It had been going for 25 years. Okay. And it was all the same thing. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I got that, that, that wasn't core. And it was, um, it was the agency that worked with them. And, and I helped them go from black and white to color. Gotcha. But at some point, it took so long to get it that they wound up using somebody else to do the, most of the ads. Oh, okay. We did. I did a few ads, and they were the first color Jack Daniels, but it was, you know, it was me doing the same basic thing. Yeah. It, it was tough because they had done so much that all I was bringing in some ways was nothing was set up. <laughs> but these guys had been photographed a hundred times yeah. already. Yeah. So it was really hard to say, just do what you're doing. Well, what do you want? Do you want the, the, the you're talking barrel? You're the guys on the, in the distillery. Yeah. What do you want, the barrel on the left side or the right <laughs> side? Do you want me to roll it this way or that? They had been, fo- it was pretty hard. Yeah to work with them to do what I did. But I it, it was a good streak. When 9-11 hit, mm-hmm. advertising stopped for a year, year yeah. and a half, maybe even two. People weren't even doing campaign, campaigns for the first year, so I was out. And, there was, and I was getting calls from everywhere. I was getting, you know, every couple of weeks I was getting a call and sending a book out of what I did. Mm-hmm. And then it stopped, and then the only way to stay in the, mind's eye of these people and still part of it was to advertise mm-hmm. and that was 10,000 bucks a pop 8,000 bucks a pop to get into the books to get into the, the magazine and have a full page ad and I was doing it for a while mm-hmm. um, and it was helpful yeah. but I couldn't afford to do it I was barely making a living it's always been I'm barely making a living <laughs> I mean I've had good years where the fine art was selling and I've had great years where both were doing well but at nine at nine eleven two thousand and one, it was the commercial work for all practical purposes was over, wow. and and I I miss it. Mm-hmm. The thing that's great about commercial work, and people don't understand it, is that you are free because the structure isn't yours. 
You're given a structure mm-hmm. to work within that is not about you. Sure. And that's freedom, yeah. especially when you've been doing it for 30 years. I think that's one of the hardest things to do is to dictate your own parameters on any subject matter and, and determine why it's interesting. Um, which, you know, I think if we look at mainly the, the books that you have out, you know, I think that's interesting to talk about is how did each of those um, get born? You know what? You have the, the horses. You have the sculptures by Rodin, uh, Vanishing America, which is kind of very popular nowadays, I think. And I think you were kind of shooting that before people had, uh, at least in this latest realm of digital photography and Instagram, mm-hmm. kind of an uh, attraction to the crumbling things, uh, the crumbling cities and towns. And then Cuba. Um, when you're shooting, let's go to the horses first. Did you just, did you have a, a, a client gig that introduced you to that? Or you just found them interesting? Were you in a, a location and you saw them and have access to them? Um, I was on a commission in New Mexico photographing somebody's home and landscape, uh-huh. and their home and that landscape in exchange for staying in that in a their place mm-hmm. and I was it was I was failing miserably because I never really had done landscape and I didn't realize that a blue sky wasn't good <laughs> that a sky full of really brilliant clouds. clouds is what you want in landscape even color black and white whatever um, and so um, did, am I getting that chronologically right or did the horse was first okay that's what I and that was when I started making money was in yeah 98, 99, 2000, I was, when the commercial work went down, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm starting to sell horses. Were you, I mean, you have had tons of themes and subject matter that you had worked with, but was there, for some reason, like... One any, at a time. What's that? Each one of those things was always one at a time. One at a time. Because I really had a... You didn't shoot multiple, like, oh, I'll shoot... Um, Landscape, I'll yeah, shoot, I'll the shoot the portrait. Yeah, I'll shoot the horses, I'll shoot the... No. It just was something no, when that I you got were feeling some, at that moment. When I got something that was a, I was a, interested in, I, I worked on that only. And I think that, more than anything, narrowed everything and... That's a valuable lesson, for yeah. sure, because I think uh, I don't operate that way. I think that I have ideas if I shoot one particular image that's successful, and I'm like... Shit, I'm going to come back to that. But I don't ever do it. <laughs> well, it's difficult because usually you're responding to a situation instead yeah. of, of, of the way you're looking. A plan. The way, the way you see the world. Right. So if you're shooting a... Like I made a photograph of um, a shotgun house in New Orleans in 2005, right before Katrina. Mm-hmm. I've wanted to shoot that house over and over again. Yeah. Sometimes you make it and you, you, you say everything you're going to say about it. It isn't doesn't have a, you know, it doesn't have this path that you can take where you can find those things. But if you can identify what it is about that photograph, they can build a series. It can build like yeah. a, the abstract, the, the 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 sense of um, doom by the sky, uh, clouds, and the sense that something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 anticipation is what that photograph, in some ways, was about. Sure. And so you have to identify that and then 
but I don't think I was that good at that. I don't think I'm that good at that now. The horses were, I made a photograph by accident while I was doing, failing miserably shooting a commissioned landscape. And I, 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 the last day, my wife and I were driving on the reservation and there was a cloud in the sky, the first one in two weeks. Mm -hmm. I said, holy cow, there we go. And so we're driving, sort of following these clouds at dusk, and all of a sudden there's a horse at the fence on the on the uh, and the, it's a white horse, whitish horse. The lights hitting it. There's a couple five clouds now. There's seven clouds now. There's a and I got, jumped out of the car and said, you know, and I started photographing this horse. And it was like I was photographing a supermodel. He was turning to the left. He was turning <laughs> to the right. He was you know looking at me. He was looking far away. And I was made all these photographs. And I got back to St. Louis, and I looked at the shoot, and I just couldn't believe how bad the <laughs> the commission had gone. These terribly deep blue New Mexican skies without a cloud because I had gone too early and I didn't know better. And this one group of photographs of this horse that was, you know, just like, my God. And so I, this is where printmaking is important. We don't talk, we haven't talked about it much, but mm -hmm. printmaking more than anything has made me um, unique in what I do. Because right. I, 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 printmaking is as important to me as anything. It's the object that you create in photography that goes on the wall, which is hugely ignored these days. It's 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 always ignored. You're looking at a screen. You're looking at Instagram. You're looking at a computer screen. I think it's slowly. Uh, I think people are slowly becoming aware that it is the most important thing. Um, but I, you know, there is such a lack of understanding. And education when it comes to making a print, and you know, not 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 even just a digital print, you know, but creating a lasting print like a C print, yeah. and, and, and choosing the correct paper and making sure that it looks stunning yeah. uh, to the to the naked eye. It's the object that we create as photographers. It's not the the image is not it. It's right. the object in the world. It's an object of art. And um, I'm well because some people look at the screen as the final resting place of an image. And it, and I, you're, I'm less optimistic than you that things are getting better. I I don't think they are. I think that uh, you I know, would say there's a, at least a, more of a passing interest after this huge Instagram phase of people wanting to create physical prints again. You know, I think it's. Everything is also cyclical, so people, I think, are always coming back to film. We obviously know film has had a resurgence of late, or making your digital images look like film, you know, filtering and whatnot. Right. But I think that people are, you know, there's always going to be a return to authenticity and saying, I want to make it like it should be. And I think there's, uh, photography is kind of forking off. This has really turned into a super photography podcast which is great because I know we can have 500 other podcasts on traveling and, mm. and other shit that we've done, but I like this. And I think, um, um, just lost my train of thought there. Well, photography is an object and people. Well, digital photography is kind of almost becoming its own thing and embracing the pixel the pixelation of an image. Yeah. Whereas it, it's, it's kind of creating its own niche to where it's saying we can't create an image that is as good as a print in some respects or as good as a film print. 
And so it's uh, people are kind of embracing the medium and saying, yeah, this is a crappy digital camera that I shot this with, or yes, this is an iPhone that I shot this with. And then on the other hand, I think that there is a return to medium format shooting um, film or whatever is the closest approximation, whether that's a very expensive digital form, uh, film back. Uh, sorry, very expensive digital medium format back. Um, I think it's kind of branching off. I think there's there's an appreciation for different types of artwork and and highlighting what tool they used. Um, but I do think that people are trying to revisit the original tools. I I hope you're right. I don't think so. Yeah. There's so many millions of followers and there's billions and trillions of photographs made every day that don't go anywhere but no, Instagram. Yeah. And I just think, you know, there are people that are doing it. But, but they're not thoughtful either because there's no need for them to be. You have something where you don't have to worry about the cost of taking a photograph. So you can, when we all do it, you can take mindless photographs even as just a to-do list to remember to do something. You know, you like take a screenshot of your phone or you shoot a piece of paper because you don't want to carry the paper around right. with you. Right. So there's, you know, there's these two very different types of photography that right. are taking place. And I think that the fact that people have a phone camera mm -hmm. on them all the time is really wonderful. Yeah, I do too. Because there's, you know, everybody's, you know, seeing the world in a different way. Of course. But I don't see, uh, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm in the fine art uh culture yeah i mm -hmm. definitely see that people are interested in prints and but you know it's like bill gates in his home had computer screens all over the place large in yeah. which he showed artwork mm -hmm. and in some level that is an object right and they're the, the you know the higher the screen resolution becomes and the bigger the files are and the better the software it's pretty impressive to see a really beautiful print that way yeah for me it's very different printmaking for me is what i've always been doing mm -hmm. it's always about the object and now because of the computer i'm able to do things i did a series of palladiums of, of succulents years ago with my daughter who was interested in the purpose was to raise money for a desert uh, palladiums house. silver palladium their right. palladium is the kind of prints they are they're okay they're, instead of silver it's pre-silver Okay. So instead of using silver, they use platinum or palladium. And what I was doing was I was photographing them with film, mm -hmm. scanning them in digitally, mm -hmm. creating transparency, basically a negative mm -hmm. of them, enlarging them, and printing palladium where you coat the paper with the palladium develop the gelatin, basically the. You coat the paper, and then you expose them. Basically blending digital and analog processes. I was doing 18th, 19th, and 20th century, at the, well, 19th, 20th, 21st century, all of those techniques together. Yeah. And it was crazy because the whole point of a contact print of a palladium or a cyanotype or, or a, a Van Dyke, all those prints, are the, the, the secret to it is you have to have a good negative. Mm-hmm. And because the the print is so limited, you can't burn, you can't dodge much. It, it's what you get is a contact print, but you can take that negative and take that file and go back after you've done a test and tweak the highlights, tweak the shadows in Photoshop, right. create a new trans, you know, negative, and then print 
given the same, uh, you know, the emulsion that you created, the painting, uh, the, the palladium on the paper, then exposing them and then um, and basically developing them. Sure. So it, it was like I was working with a basically a completely archaic material. Nobody mm-hmm. does palladiums. They're, they're completely impossible. It's probably expensive too. And right? it's very expensive, but... <laughs> It was it was real cool to be able to to be able to be at that point in my life where I had those varied skills and were able to use all of them. And now I'm doing that all the time. So I'm doing a series of cyanotypes of negative trees that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a set of um, photographs where I'm paint, printing on uh, watercolor paper mm-hmm. in my inkjet, and I'm creating um, glazes that I'm covering the print with uh, and I got those glazes by looking googling Rembrandt finding out the formula he used and doing some horses that I was doing on these beautiful paper beautiful uh, tones in the original horse photograph and then creating a, 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 a this this um, wash that I would paint on them and they were I was creating this lusciousness that you couldn't get of a print Right. And that isn't in a window, mm-hmm. it isn't on a screen. That that it it's an object in the world that has a look that's that's unique and beautiful and warm and says what you want to do. And I'm doing that with transparencies. I'm doing these collages now, where I'm creating collages that I make and photograph and print and then tra- transparencies and do layers. All these things I'm doing are based on all the sort of things I've learned in it, in it, and it's about process. So right now, that's what I'm interested in. I always have been. When we talked earlier about me getting on one thing, mm-hmm. it's about process. Yeah. How do I shoot? A, I did the first real series of work I did after the nudes was black and white um, abstraction of architectural form. And I was teaching myself how to see, how to compose. Mm-hmm. Every inch of that frame was was controlled by where I put the camera and even post how I trimmed it or, you know, it was like, it was exactly what I wanted. It was f- formal studies in using architecture and making these beautiful black and white, as beautiful as I could make them, mm-hmm. black and white prints. But it was a process. So I was going out all the time. I wasn't looking for anything else than interesting prints, uh, interesting walls and surfaces of architecture new, old, whatever, and trying to find things that fit kind of what I was looking for. And you're referencing which work here? The uh, abstract architectural black and white in the gotcha. in the seven, in basically 70, 80, 81, 82. And then I got a color camera and then mm-hmm. I started shooting them in color and then that was the end of black and white. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the way that you're talking about what you're working on now in relation to the um, stylistic tendencies that you've had in terms of being somewhat painterly, um, it's almost like you're trying to bridge the gap now. So you're taking an image and then you're applying these different processes and, and they're very physical processes now and like painting or waxing or layering, um, trying to blend uh, the two the differences between a physical process and using a, a an image, whether it's achieved through digital or other means. I when I started off, I was a photographer who was more interested in painting than I was photography. Yeah, and now I'm a painter using a camera. 
That's funny. As a, as as my tool. And it's, you know, it's, it, I mean, it took a long time to get here and right. it took enough experience and looking at other painters and looking at other photographs, and photographers to see that what my way was, the, my manner of working was unique to me and was about as much about the color, texture, surface, um, patina of a, of a photograph as it was about and then the way I print it is so important. Because yeah, that's my tr- that's you know it doesn't end when I make the when I take the picture. In some cases, it's just the beginning. Well, and you've you've clearly shown uh, an attention towards these patinas while you're shooting interiors and whatever whatever else. Uh, and now you're trying to almost bring the patina through the artwork so that you can actually see and almost feel it. It seems like, in some respects, yeah. Like it's not enough to take a picture of patina; you want to create the the weatherness on the final image almost as well. Yeah, and is what you, it seems like. Yeah, and if you can make them one of a kind, all the better, you know. Yeah. Because then it's just you really are. A that's all. That's a whole other podcast too. Is uh, series and and numbering and, and the art world in general. Like yeah. I know we've talked about that quite a bit. I think that's one of the most not most, one of the more fascinating topics because it's uh, kind of inherently uh, mysterious. Well, it's not why, I, you know, when when we started off, when you well, what it became was, I liked photography when it was photography and it wasn't a fine art. Yeah. It was its own thing. It had its own sort of... That's interesting. What was the timeline that photography did be, start to... Well... Because I don't, I can't really pinpoint that. Probably... In the 80s was 150 year. Uh, that was about the time when people started to accept in the photography as an art form. And then all these institutions and grew and these experts at, at some at one point was you could go to a, you know you could trade with any photographer for prints. You just say, God, I really like that work. Well, I like your work. You want to trade? Yeah. So where did it live before this? Was it purely journalistic? Like uh... no, it was fine art. There was a fine art world. Weston was a well, you know, there were people like Western, Minor White, Harry Callahan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there, uh, Aaron Siskin. There were all these guys. There were fine art photographers. They were making a living elsewhere, and they were selling prints. Yeah. Stiglitz did the, you know, the beginning of photography in New York with that, right. the with the gallery that he had. And he was showing photographers and painters, mm-hmm. contemporary, modern painters, Picasso things. I mean, it was like the place. And so there were photography there, mm-hmm. and it was part of you know Dadaism. There was uh, you know uh, Man Ray was doing all kinds of interesting things, mm-hmm. and so photography was being sold then as well. So it was there, but it was small. It was you know it, kind of obscure. It wasn't mainstream, and didn't really start to come into popularity until the eighties. Well, it became an art form, and then had its own institutions and its gotcha. experts, and then it became um, a you know, controlled limited editions mm-hmm. were ways to market it so that, yeah. if, you know, you, there was, you know, if you couldn't sell one photograph, oh, yeah. you couldn't sell one photograph and make a living because you couldn't get more than three or four or five hundred dollars. That was a lot. I want to, I want to save that for a future podcast, okay. I think, getting into the whole art world because you've had uh, extensive experience with it and that's just something that I'm very interested yeah, with. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Let's just put it this way. I liked it better when it was just a regular <laughs> old, 
its own thing. And it, yeah. I think it got somehow too commercialized and too precious and too many experts and too much, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because there's, you know, the, the other thing is that photography's grown so much since it was accepted in that way. Every, almost every art form has probably except for, you know, I don't know about sculpting, but even there, there are even some people doing interesting things with not necessarily marble, but other uh, other mediums oh, that sure. are easier to work with. Yeah, yeah. No, it's you know it it grows, it changes totally. It, it uh, that's what the beauty of art is. What um, let's get let's let's briefly touch on Cuba. I don't want to keep you here forever, uh, but I'm I'm good. I'm I'm interested in uh, hearing. Mainly about one the discovery of w- wanting to shoot there, and then two how you went, how you did it, well, how you it, even traveled over there. <laughs> it was interesting because, uh, like I told said earlier, I'm, I'm agoraphobic, so it's right. I don't travel. I'm starting to travel better. When but did I you usually, start to overcome that? Never. It's still <laughs> like somebody with me that I. I love get and it. trust because yeah. I don't know. I just I got really anxious. It's you know when I was a kid and homesick, and it was mm-hmm. you know it was frightening at the time when I was really young. What did it? I mean, did it stem from an experience or just a general feeling of uneasiness of not being with somebody that you know? I don't know. I I just I don't know. I think it was a trip I took as a kid at about twelve years old uh-huh. to visit friends that. For my twelve-year-old too, and yeah. alone and feeling like I wanted to, you know, felt homesick. Yeah, I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know why. I uh, had the same feelings. I feel like I had a lot of friends that were more adventurous and would go to summer camps and be gone for a week at a time. And I'm like, oh my god! Or some kids who would be gone all summer long. And I had such a close connection with my mother and my father um, that it would be hard for me to be gone very long yeah but that's me from them and so i think that that uh you look back at these things that you know maybe were traumatic at the at the young age like i don't know spending the night at somebody's house and wet in the bed or yeah and you're you you begin to want to seek um your comfort yeah and get comfortable yeah. with it but then i think what happened for me and potentially for you is that you start to get to an age you build confidence and you look back at these things as almost like what am I doing? You know, what? that's silly to be afraid of that, or that's silly to not want to go see yeah. these things. And, you you know, I I personally then dove headlong into breaking out of my comfort zones and my youthful self. Um, you know, and that's just, I think, kind of a natural evolution for a lot of people. But uh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, that you, you didn't feel comfortable traveling until a later age. I still don't. You still don't. I mean, I don't like traveling alone. Yeah, I, I don't like. I don't. I mean, I'm. I, I like the comfort of of, of people I know of and camaraderie. Love. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just you know the the idea of sitting in a restaurant alone to eat every night mm-hmm. while you're in some foreign country shooting. That's kind of funny because it's it's not uh, it's it, not my and a lot of people photographers that's what they live for. And they're right. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah. almost antithetical to the lone wolf photographer who you know goes out and shoots their subject matter and you don't know much about them until they present the work. I don't know if it's limited me or it's helped me. Mm-hmm. Probably a little of both. Yeah. Um, because the few opportunities I've had have been so precious and important 
that I'm all in and all there. There's no yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, I'm not coming sure. back. Right. I don't even want to be here now. <laughs> well, it's better. I mean, and you know, when I travel with Gail, mm-hmm. it's like you know, it's I'm, it's my home. She's my home. I think that was part of it. I think it was the closest to my parents. I think um, you know, without getting too uh, uh, <laughs> too too Freudian. Freudian. I think there was a part of me that when I was eight or nine was when it began, mm-hmm. and I would I would go to sleep and I would I would. I would not be able to sleep. I would be anxious and scared. Oh, same here. Yeah, and I would think, what's the point of living if my dad's going to die? Yeah. Because I love him so much, I can't imagine the world without him. Yeah. And I think that was the beginning of this, and it was sort of this um, existential uh, conclusion that I came up with. Well, it doesn't really matter anyway because we're all going to die. Right. And then I could sleep. Well, that turned off a whole bunch of switches. On my motherboard. Were you? Did you have like uh, much religion playing into that? None. None. Your no, parents it was, weren't religious at all. It was. It was metaphysical. It was a conclusion that I made. <laughs> it was, and then I read Camus later, and it started, and I said, "Oh my God, yeah. these guys are the same dudes. They must have loved their dad too and couldn't <laughs> sleep, <laughs> and they were scared." But it it turns out that that was probably. Uh, a way to get through it because mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't obviously talk to my dad. I didn't want to tell him he was going to die because maybe he didn't know. Right. And I was yeah yeah yeah. I was nine years old. I was eight years old. I was seven years old. You, well, there's that view of solipsism and that the world revolves around you, and you're not even sure if everybody else is really. <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, you know, I, I think that's why the home and my father especially were so important to me because they were the thing I loved the most. Does that concept play into the interiors, you think? Well, there's certainly something about the interiors and Cuba especially, which is about human presence in a place. Mm -hmm. Or lack of. Well, even when there's nobody there, they're there. Yeah, which I love. You've told me many times um, that you're taking portraits and it's almost as if you feel somebody has just walked into or uh, or is about to walk into the room or, just or has just left. Yeah. No, I think when it, they're, they're the, this, that body of work, and there's a lot of it, uh, not just Cuba, Italy, etc. Mm-hmm. but it, it's really that sense of human presence that yeah. I'm looking for. And it's what, you know, it, you know, it's the paintings on the wall. It's the condition of the, the bedspread on the bed. It's the, floor and what kind it is and what shape it is. It's also the history of the place as yeah. well and what has happened there prior to you yeah. being there. But that's all that story that of yeah. that person. Have it's you, not just the... Uh, sorry, have you seen uh, a ghost story? Uh, yeah. That film, I think, did an incredible job of communicating that idea and of having a physical place and going back into the memory of the place mm-hmm. and how it relates to uh, how people interact with it today. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been a better film version of expressing that idea. Um, and I think your work does an incredible job of that uh, in a still image because you're trying to communicate something. You're trying to tap into the collective conscious of a place that people have never been and, and and identify with something that uh, we all have a feeling of, whether we address it or whether we're conscious of it or not. Um, so I, I, that's just a very interesting concept. You know, mm-hmm. that's uh, it, it speaks a lot to me. It's something I think about 
probably less and less. But when I was a kid, I just remember, I wish I could stand on this hill and see how the landscape has changed over the past 200 years. Mm-hmm. Or I wish I could see all of the parties that have existed in this room or all the weird shit that's gone down in this room or you know, just watch a room play back, uh, which is a pretty bizarre idea. But I think that some, some essence of your work does that a little bit. Yeah, certainly I'm trying to find the place at the right time to share right. it. You know, it's not It's over. hard to even put into words. <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, it's, it is emotional. You, I do respond to things. And, um, but what I'm also, in, you know, the other thing that, the other thing that these things are about, it's not just at the present, although that's such a big part of it. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter what you're shooting. Right. But it's the way the light hits it, the way the light informs the mm-hmm. shapes, and you get a sense of the volume of the place, and the way the, the logic of light, the physics of light, mm-hmm. the co- the color of the place, and how it's rendered in the photograph. It's the formal composition of the piece. It's mm-hmm. how things are divided by where I put the camera, exactly where I put the camera. I had somebody ask me once, you know, you stand in front of a place and I stand in front of a place. We both shoot it and yours is great and mine sucks. How is that? I said, I know where to put the camera, dude. Mm-hmm. Exactly where to put the camera. Then all those relationships of those forms is, uh, you know, is composed. And the thing that's interesting about it is that when you look at any of my work, I you know, and I still do, they're exactly the same as those beginning early abstract uh, or architectural pieces that I was doing in the mm-hmm. in the whenever seventy eight eighty that that whole the composition was similar. You're saying yeah the yeah. The, the formal underlying composition of a Cuba piece or anything I do today is mm-hmm. the same. Yeah, it's all it's not the same composition, but it has the same proportions. It has the same this part of the floor, that triangle that you're seeing, mm-hmm. that's that's not too big, it's not too small. The walkway through or the column, the amount of the column on that right side is balanced between something that's going on on the left side. It's sort of like composition to me is like juggling. Yeah. When you learn, and when I learned with those architectural uh, abstractions I first started with, you, you learn the juggling by throwing one ball at a time and catching it. And then you add a second and a right. third and a fourth and a fifth. And that's sort of what happens with these later pieces of mine. They're more about, they're not so simple. They're, I'm able to handle more um, elements in a photograph and be able to still compose them formally in a way that's, that both has a resolution and also has a tension in the diagonals and the squares and the rectangles and all those things. Well, and it took, you know... And that's painterly. That's what a painter does. And it took, uh, you know, the 25, 30 years for that to be a second nature because then it becomes... The technical aspect is ingrained into you and that allows you to find the emotional perspective, you know, for example, of wherever you're at. Yeah. So you've got all this stuff, all the math running around in your head and you almost don't even have to pay attention to the specific aspects because you know, 
I want that lighting to look like this. I'm going to catch that lighting uh, reflecting off of that chandelier. It's going to be a little dark over here. This is going to fill up this second third mm -hmm. of the frame. But as you know, that's the thing I'm trying to say is as a photographer, me now having shot for 25 years, you don't think about that because it's so ingrained, but you think about the emotional impact from knowing how all of those things are going to work together to express themselves to the viewer. Right. To yourself and then secondarily the viewer. Regardless of what's in front of you, if you don't, if you don't get to the right place, you're not presenting it yeah. in the most powerful way. And you need that. That's a, that's a good metaphor for life, too. Yeah. No, you, you do. And I mean, I know, I mean, I know pretty much where I want to put the camera when I walk in to see something. That's the most exciting thing in the world to yeah. want to photograph something and pull your, you know, for me, it was pulling out a big ass tripod <laughs> and a big old camera with a ground cloth over your head and moving it in, in this dimly lit ground glass. Yeah. That you could barely see, but you could <laughs> see. And, um, you know, making, moving it in and moving it out and moving it left and moving it right, moving it down a little bit, up a little, and looking what happens to all this. Now, I mean, I can pretty much know, because I'm using a wide-angle lens, especially on these interiors, so it's not like a normal lens. You mm -hmm. Things happen <laughs> that at certain distances that don't happen at other distances. And so you want to be in the place, and when you hit it, when you when you get it, get it right, which now I I, I rarely don't because I kind of know where I want to be. Well, it's a it's an interesting take on the uh, philosophy of the decisive moment. I mm -hmm. think not necessarily shooting. Um, you know, I think when a photographer thinks of the decisive moment, they're thinking of being in the right place at the exact right moment, it's all very fast and it has to happen. But it's when you're talking about is my life has led me to this moment and I have to capture it accurately. Right. This building has existed up into this moment in a certain form and it's going to exist differently after this. It may fall down in a month, a week, a year. They have. Yeah. And it's less about, it's about, it's not just about you capturing that one moment it's about your moments and the moments of what's in front of you all coming together yes which is interesting i think yeah well and and you're talking about Cartier bresson mm -hmm. i think the thing about him was it's not just the decisive moment yeah his frame is is awesome mm -hmm. his frame is so powerful and it's so um it presents that moment in a in a frame that you know that is just Brilliant, and he does it because he apparently was the most intense guy in the world. He he was on the street all the time, yeah. always looking and always throwing a camera up and trying to be in the right place at the right time. It's not just the decisive moment; it's the decisive spot. It's a it's a place he photographs from, because those frames, you you, he made that decision as quickly as he saw that something was going to happen, sure. and that frame. It presents that moment where that person is jumping and about to hit the puddle. There's in the frame, he's at the right space. There's enough room on the right for him to, for him to, for the viewer to emotionally sure. see that where he's headed. If it was cropped differently, it would not be the same photograph. It would not be great. 
Well, and I think that in relation to your work, it's the same thing, but on a more stretched out timeline. Yeah, decisive moment moment does can be a, a a week, a month, a year. Because you got all of these travel plans that lead up to going to a place. You have the time of day that you're allowed to go in. You have the sun at that time of day reflecting on exterior things and coming in through windows that you're not sure what it's going to be. So I think uh, there is an uh, instantaneous value to what you're shooting that it's never, literally never going to be the same again, Mm -hmm. even if it is a room somewhere, somewhere in the world. Um, And I think that that's an interesting way to look at, you know, for example, street photography versus these uh, interior portraits. Yeah, you you know the thing is about photography is that you have to make it your own. Yeah, and that if you're doing street photography, for instance, I mean you can be the best, but you're always going to be compared to who came before. The thing I think is more important in art, period, mm-hmm. photography, maybe to some extent, but for me, it's everything. Is how do you make it yours? Yeah. So that when you look at a photograph and say, I remember the first time somebody said, I saw a photograph the other day and I thought that must, that must be an Eastman. Mm-hmm. That was when I thought it might be onto something. The real thing I, I realized when I was onto something is when my photograph was written in a divorce paper and who got what. <laughs> and it was. When was that? Oh, that was early. <laughs> the first, first photograph I sold, speaking of law, was to a lawyer. It was a picture from the first... First fine art photograph. Yeah, yeah black and white, uh, that architectural thing, that early abstraction. It was a mm-hmm. set of bars, <laughs> black on black, with one bar bent. And he wanted that print to put behind his desk so he could turn around and say to his client, I'm the only one that can bend the bars and keep you out of jail. <laughs> and that was the first one I sold. <laughs> What well, that's a interesting. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't even thinking of no, that. No, I, <laughs> I never, not even to this day, do I think that. that I mean, it was about, it was about something else. It was about the geometry of the place. It was about the way a black and white print looked when it was beautiful and the, the blacks glowed. And the, <laughs> it was about the sharpness of the image. It was about the composition. So what led to the decisive moment of then being able to go to Cuba? You know? Cuba was. I was looking at. Um, I was looking at uh, online. I guess um, French fashion magazines. And my wife, was, who is an amazing researcher, mm-hmm. uh, that's what she was trained as. As, as a psych, uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, experimental psychologist. So she did research. So she was looking at this stuff, and she was showing me these pictures of these of these fashion shoots with these beautiful models. And I'm looking at the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm saying, wow, did you see that room? It's like, did you see the architecture? Did you see the, what's on the walls? And, and then we saw um, uh, Buena Vista Social Club. Oh, yeah. And so everybody's looking at the musicians. And it was like 99? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe 98, because I went in 99. Yeah. But it could have been. It was with, pretty... Uh, pretty Ry Cooter yeah. was the musician. Yeah. yeah. And the filmmaker, yes. And um, no, it wasn't he, wasn't the filmmaker. I can't remember. It was somebody fairly significant. Wen- uh, was yeah. it Wender or yeah. someone? It might have been William. I don't know why I remember that shit, but 
It was cool. But the thing that was cool about it was I was watching a thing and it was all about the music and the musicians. and Great film. Great film. Yeah. And I'm all I'm looking at is behind everybody and looking at the walls and the streets <laughs> and the color and going, I got to get there because somebody's going to get there before me if I don't hurry. And there were people there before me. Andrew Moore was there shooting and Robert Polidari. And they did some really beautiful oh, Walker work. Evans, too. I mean, well, Walker Evans in the, in the 30s. So I was looking at that body of work, too. Um, before He's I went, also a Saint. He was born in St. Louis. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, I, I was so. There was a sense of urgency that I really needed to get there, mm-hmm. and I needed to get there soon. And I did it, and I went there, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what to do at the did time. Did you have a fixer, a producer, or anything? I like that? had a guy who was going to drive me around, who another <laughs> photographer that I knew of from somebody else said he worked with him. Mm-hmm. And we went, called him, and he picked us up. And and there was, I, I'm really fascinated by, because what year was this, 2000 or 99? 99. So it's technically illegal to travel to Cuba at this point, right? No. No. If you did it through a license thing, okay, an institution that had a license to mm-hmm. travel, if you did it, I went to the International Film Festival. Mm. That's what we were going with. We were all, you know, set to do it. So I didn't you, see one film. You had to have a reason. You to, had a, a religious, uh, so family. cultural, yeah. family. Okay. Uh, so that's pretty much how it was when I went back in uh, 2015 yeah. and 2016 yeah. as well. I guess there was an idea of Cuba being illegal to travel to. Uh, it wasn't easy and it was scary. Yeah. It was, but it was possible. But and didn't you? I remember you telling me that you used to took a boat or something from Miami, or that there was a different way of getting there. I could have gotten there through by boat. Somebody offered to fly, you know, to, to ride me there. Yeah, boat. But you know, that was, you know, that, even more sketchy. Yeah, this was fine. <laughs> you were, I, you had permission from the government. You so had who flew a, there. I flew there. Yeah, flew for there. like what airline would that be? We flew to. United or something to okay. um, Cancun or oh, and then a Mexican and airline. Then a Me- to no, Cuba. then a Cuban airline. To oh, Cuban airline. Yeah. Okay. And then, then at some point, you, I think maybe that was the first trip. But you could go. No, you could go from Miami. There were flights going from Miami, but there were you had to have that paperwork. You had to yeah. be legitimate. And uh, so the first which one, wasn't pub. That wasn't a very common knowledge. No, I, I mean yeah. I was. You know, I mean. I was pretty persistent. That's pretty impressive for someone who... Uh, didn't you know, like to travel. Right. Well, I had my blankie with me. <laughs> my, my, Gail. My lovely wife, Gail. I mean, she is, she is, uh, she is home. Yeah. She is, she is my love. But, um, yeah, so I went down there and I had no idea what to do. And so at the time I was shooting for CORE and I was shooting real people doing real stuff. In Cuba. Me. Oh, okay. With the medium format cameras. What was the... Uh, and I was shooting everything on the street and people walking. What and was the client for that? No, 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 no. I said I'm shooting like I was shooting for Oh, court. sorry. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, and I was just shooting with that approach. I was doing a little architecture. Mm-hmm. We found an interior. I shot that Isabella II chair, which is the first one of that. Uh, and a few interiors. Is in that there. Your, technically your most famous or renowned image? Yeah. Okay. Or one of the green prints. One of the green prints. Yeah. They're both sold out. Yeah. So they they went they went often 
went early and often. You know, I did well with those prints. Right. And um, but that first day, I, 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 that first time up, I didn't, I didn't have an idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was just feeling my way. Second year was about the same, a little better. Had a couple of good opportunities. And you were there for like two weeks, maybe at a time. Yeah, week, mm-hmm. maybe ten days. Not not long. I didn't like being gone. And then Gail didn't go after the, the, the first, first one. Time. Yeah, <laughs> so I had to bring. Uh, I used to bring an assistant. <laughs> I mean, I hate to be a wimp about it, but it made it work, and it was fun to be with that person and, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out and getting to know people. Because I'm not really social. I don't, I don't, I'm kind of a loner. Did, uh, um, oh, I don't know about that. I've hung out with you, and you, you're pretty outgoing. Well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation I'm comfortable in. That's true. Um, and I know people. Did you become more comfortable with Cuba the more you met Wentz? Yeah. Yeah, I almost was going to go back uh, recently, but the, I tried to get a location scout to find me stuff, and I think I got most of it. And then there was a part of me that didn't want to go back. I mean, I've been there five times. Yeah, and was this solely old Havana or yeah, surrounding uh, areas? Pretty much. I, I didn't, you know, everybody said, you got to go here and you got to go there. And mm-hmm. uh, the architecture in Havana is. Well, you know, it's, what I I'm, guess where more of the wealth was concentrated. Yeah, yeah. and it's. You know, there's Deco and there's Colonial, Spanish Colonial. And, you know, they're just really, really, really beautiful buildings, beautiful architectures. And, you know, with a story and a history to them. And, you know. But it wasn't clicking until how many Probably times? the second, the 99, and I went to 2000. Mm-hmm. 2001, I had a heart attack. Oh, man. Didn't go. <laughs> 2002, I went. Mm-hmm. And then 2010 and 2014. 2010 was like bingo. <laughs> and most of it was just getting in front of the right places. It's always, that's a big part of what photography is. Was uh, how much of the work from 2010 would you say is in the book? Is Everything. Like, oh, okay. Everything I shot. Like 80 20 rule, more or less? No, it wasn't that much. But I mean, everything I shot in 2010, there's like probably 12 or 14 or 16 images that are in the book. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it was a really, I mean, I found three or four spectacular interiors and just, you know, which was great. I mean, I still think I could find them. I just, it's, it's just, we both know it's uh, a lot of effort. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it, you know, and I, you know, it's so frustrating when you know that there's these, probably these interiors that are there, but you don't know how to get to them or see them or. So, then that work, that body of work, you know, this coincides with uh, becoming more well known for that type of work and the previous work that you did. Yeah. So we're talking roughly 10 years ago. Um, the book came out in 2010, was it? Or 2011. I think it was 2011 because that's when I first started yeah. knowing. Uh, more about you through Carlos and Brennan's and everything. Yeah. And then... Uh, yeah, it was 2011 because 2010 was in it. But 2000. your your work is starting to ramp up in terms of being more seen, more galleries interested. Yeah, I had a great gallery in New York, uh, f- probably started in 2000. Mm-hmm. No, 2007. Yeah, 2007 when the crash was, mm-hmm. I went with... Somebody, Barry Friedman in New York, and he was 
And that's when your 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 work started getting more popular, right before the crash, or. Um, I'm just trying to think when I went. Uh, let me just think for a second. It's uh, eleven. 2008 mm-hmm. is when I went with Barry Friedman. It was right after the crash. And yes. And people were And he was the work? only gallery and he was selling. Wow. All the way through that. Everybody was like starving, dying, screaming, you know, praying, crying. Every, and I was just like, oh, we sold two. Oh, we <laughs> sold four. Oh. It was, and it was great. Mm-hmm. And um, he was putting it, he was, you know, he'd get booths at uh, Art Miami that would be huge booths and I'd have, 12 pieces up was unheard of. That's awesome. Yeah, he was fantastic. And so that in turn propelled the books and the publisher interest? Well, the book came from Barry. Barry, you know, was published, uh, helped publish the the Havana book. Okay. The horses was, you know, starting to wane at that point. I Mm -hmm. mean, there were people that were copying it. Yeah. Um, But I, from 99 through 2004 or 5 or 6, it was how I made a living. Yeah. I wasn't shooting commercially. Yeah, because you told a local publication that you were done shooting, right? Well, I didn't <laughs> say that like exactly, that. but that's how he wrote it. That's right. Turns out I lost all my commercial work because they said, well, like, oh, he's screw done him. working. I guess he doesn't like, he doesn't think our, our, what we do is very important. <laughs> that was the tone of the thing. And of, so, of luckily, your artwork, your fine art started to pick up in sales. To compensate yes. for that commercial work, yeah, and it was mostly, it was mostly the horses, yeah. And then I had, you know, five or six or seven or eight or ten galleries. I had a full time assistant that that's all they were doing was printing and shipping. And do you make much money from the books? No. Any money? No. Really? Never. Even I mean, have you gone through reprints or is it? I, typically- yeah, the horse book was on its fourth edition. And you don't cost thirty five grand to print it <laughs> from out of my pocket. Oh, who, the publisher didn't. Pay Knopf it? didn't pay for it. Interesting. Yeah, they don't pay for it anymore. <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's it's all self published in some ways. That's, they distribute it. They put it together, but you get the return though. You don't get paid back. You get a return, but you don't get you don't get the first thirty five thousand dollars of sales. <laughs> For sure, I understand that. Yeah, but which, after four printings, I mean, we probably made. I probably made it back. Okay, well, five, I hope pr- so. five printings, five editions. Yeah, and I probably made it back because we were getting, you know, we we're getting checks uh, from the publisher. Yeah, yeah, and then they started to diminish. But we we might have gotten close. And then I sold books on my own at, and galleries. I get half. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm just thinking about the music world, and it almost seems like the books are your albums, and that the prints in the galleries are your live performances. Yes, in a sense, it's true. Where um, you actually make your money. Yeah, and that's what happens. Basically, I had a suggest a gallery in New York, David Faye, who I talked to on the phone, and he said, "What you got to do is you got to get a book of mm-hmm. this work, and then have a traveling show." And then sell the book at the openings. It it makes people think that you're the real deal and that <laughs> you're legitimate because you have a book. Mm-hmm. And then you'll sell your prints. And he was absolutely right. And that's what happened. Got the book, got the traveling show, shipped it out. I had these all these galleries where it go from one gallery to the other. And I did five traveling shows like that. Traveling show was smart because I, I saw an Annie Leibovitz show early about in the 
late 90s mm-hmm. that was in St. Louis. And I said, wait a minute, none of these are signed. What's going on? He said, well, she doesn't sell these. These are exhibition prints. Yeah. She, if you want to buy this print, she fills the order and sends it. And I went, ah. <laughs> so you get one traveling show, and you can travel it 10 times if it doesn't get too speed up. It only costs you that one time when you print it, which right. isn't cheap. They pay for the shipping there and back. And you sell prints, they order them. You get the check before you send them. Yeah. So you're not worried the about the Jewish. Uh, yeah, that was a Jewish starts dude. coming in. Yeah, where's my, where's my check, dude? <laughs> I'll send it as soon as I get it. And it was smart because I never had to deal with somebody that didn't pay me. Yeah. I haven't gotten, I've only gotten really stuck once mm-hmm. in, in all that time. Because usually I either have a relationship with them, and but I start off with, I need the check before I'm going to do it. And it's tough to do because you're scared to death. They're going to say, well, I don't need you. Yeah. Who are you? Well, plus, yeah, I mean, again, for another podcast, the gallery has taken 50% or more in some situations or whatever yeah. arrangement that you have with them. Um, and I'm also interested, I know we've talked about this in the, in the self uh, se- selling of art as well, you know, like what had Damien Hurst and I believe Jeff Koons has done to some to some success, not yeah. some success, ultimate it's, success. Yeah, no, I mean they're they're um, they're IBM. Yeah, you know, right. It's not real, but it's it's also the natural progression. Uh, like, what function do art galleries have in the modern age? You know. I think there's a, a discussion to be had. Um, I, I think that they're significant because... That most, they are significant. Oh, I think they're, they're very important. And I think 50% seems like a lot, mm-hmm. but nobody's rich. There's so many no. people they're carrying that they don't sell. Yeah. Um, it's a place where people go usually to discover the work. And now art fairs have taken some of that but there's still galleries have to be the ones that take it to you. Well, you've seen they, that documentary, the uh, yeah. the price of everything. Yeah, I believe it's called. It came out about yeah. a year ago or yeah. so. Yeah, very uh, depressing and very, I mean, very true. But it's it but, is, and I feel like they don't even go deep enough in it to really. Um, it's kind of a very surface level look at the insanity of the art world and how it is. Uh, you know. The, the synergy beti- behind people wanting something and selling it for a ridiculous price and back and forth and then street art and everything like that. But the thing is, for all of its flaws, for all yeah. its unfairness, for all its pretension, there are more artists selling work than ever before. Than ever before. Yeah, that's true. By far. Yeah. There are more people making a living selling art by far. Plus with grants and... Uh, more of a cultural relevance, you know. Uh, the, those those are getting funded too. Yeah. The idea of patronage has uh, reached a digital platform. There's even a site called Patreon where people are, you know, benefactors with quotes, uh, uh, and it, and you know that's helped people maintain what they do. And I think art is also cheaper and more accessible in a way that it's never been before. Obviously, because of the internet and for other obvious factors but um you know like anything it's part good and part bad yeah but it's there's a lot of people making you know money off of it and it, you know when i started that woman said 40 bucks <laughs> are you kidding and it's like you know it's um 
it's come a long way. I mean, there's lots of people that are actually selling work, and it's and 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 they're not. It's 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 not the high end stuff. It's you mm-hmm. know, hundred, five hundred, eight hundred bucks for a nice size print, and you know, people um, people are really involved in art in a way that they were, right. both collecting and 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 making it and selling it. So. In between, you know, uh, the Cuba work into the work that you're doing now and kind of pulling the patina out of the photograph and making a physical piece. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I know you and I have gone to New Orleans once, and that was an experience, uh, getting to watch you in action. I know you've been back once since. Do you have a plan for that work? I'd like to do a book. I don't know if there is a book. I'm supposed to um, talk to somebody in June about it. And how would that go? Like now that you have a, a a library of you know four or five books, can you approach the publisher, or do you still have to have someone do that on your behalf? Well, in this case, I'll have uh, 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 his name is um, Douglas Brinkley. He's a historian. He's mm-hmm. fairly well known. He's a very successful writer. He's from New Orleans. He was one of the first people to encourage me to photograph in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, after he saw the Cuba pieces and thought they were actually made in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised it was Havana. And he, we've been talking about it for a while, about him, you know, he can pretty much call a publisher and say, I want to do this book, and somebody will do it, because he's right. got a track record. Yeah. And he'll write a beautiful you know, he, he, did he do a foreword? He on did a foreword in the Vanishing, Vanishing America. America. Yeah, okay, Be- really well done. Real beautiful essay. Yeah, and he's he's definitely found some success with his personal work, and then also uh, I noticed he was on uh, some of the CNN series, the eighties, the seventies, yeah. the sixties, and yeah, he's he's has a good insight to things. He's a cold. He's a he's a very cool guy. He's very in demand, and he's. And we don't have much of a relationship, but it's it's what we have is good. He got me. But he in, recognizes that. Uh, your work is important, and vice versa. And I think, uh, I think that's great. We'll see. And then the second book I'm working on is this uh, Forest Park. This book that I've started. I've been photographing there for 50 years. Right. And it's pretty cool. I I, I got to find funding. Um, and um, uh, you know, it's tough to find funding because it costs fifty thousand dollars to do a big book. But I want to do it because it's 50 years of me photographing in the park. And it's, you know, from the first couple weeks that I photographed, I have photographs from that yeah. that were done in the park to what I've been doing. And there are all kinds of different portfolios. There's cyanotypes. There's a, a lens that I invented that has a that looks like an impressionist photograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's uh, tone prints. There's transfer prints there's black and white prints there's you know i'm gonna do some van dykes next well so so it's it's basically one artist is staying in the same place for 50 years shooting the same thing it's about that process and that's why um again not that uh you know why i stated earlier i'm not trying to make a st louis podcast but in your story it does play such a huge figure yeah, and I and I see it's interesting that you are coming back to a place over and over again, which is one of the largest municipal parks in the in the in the country. Um, 
and how you how that work initially connected you with your you know your later in life mentor mm-hmm. and i think it's always interesting to see what it boils down to as a passion project um, because you have accessibility to it you know it very well it's meaningful to you and it's meaningful to the people that are around you on an everyday basis so i think that that's great i love it when whether it's music or photography or art, people find success through one medium and then bring it back to the place where they're from. Yeah, it's, you know, I need that place. I need a place to go when I'm not traveling. Yeah. I need a place to make photographs when I'm not inspired. I'm, I, 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 I could go there and see. Now it feels like I know the place like my the back of my hand. But, right. But I... Close my eyes and I don't know what the back of my hand looks like. Well, I feel that way too. I feel like you could drug me and drop me off in any back alley, and I, you know, within f- two seconds would know where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, but you know, I, I, um, I'm more interested now. It's really interesting because I'm finding myself, especially with this new, new work. I'm not shooting much. I'm really going back and looking at old negatives and old prints and trying to reprint them in different ways. That's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, there, you know, I mean, I've got so many images that I didn't print or I didn't print well or I didn't think were worthy of printing. But, you know, tear them in half, add another image, start painting on it, do it transferred, cover them with wax. I mean, whatever it is that I've kind of pre visualized or just the process of working with printing, I'm creating something new out of something that that has existed and maybe I'm printing it for the first time or certainly I'm printing it differently than I did before. Well, what I'm always uh, impressed by is your ability to uh, get excited about a new process or a new medium. And uh, like you said, I think that that's why your work continues to get better because you're passionate about it and you're, um, you know, authentically interested about doing something and figuring out a new way to do it. And I think, uh, you know, when we worked together and when I've helped you on trips in the past, it's just, it's, it's inspiring to me to see someone who has been successful and then to go after the work and want to continue to be successful on an even larger scale Yeah, and whatever that means to you, you know, um, I think, uh, for sake of longevity, should probably call it here okay and we have so much more things we can talk about uh from the art world to photography going even even more in depth more travels more family stuff if we ever want to get that deep um i want to uh where can people find your work the easiest way to get a hold oh, of it oh yeah if you google michael eastman yeah i think it's the dub it's eastman images.com and it's uh uh, and Instagram, it's Michael Eastman Photography. Although I'm thinking of quitting Instagram. Why is that? Well, I, I don't like the pressure of having to put things up and wondering <laughs> how many people follow or like it. It's like the worst part of me. <laughs> and I don't Amplified. see... Amplified? Well, it's sort of like the beginning. Oops. You're good. It's sort of like the beginning when I was had all those voices in my head. I don't need them. They don't serve any purpose to me. Yeah, but rarely on Instagram are people ever going, oh, my... This image isn't as good as it could be. No, no, they never do. <laughs> but the point is that I am focused on 
the feedback, the number, and mm, the, the followers, likes. and the likes, and 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 is this any good? And does anybody like this one? And oh, if they don't like this, maybe I shouldn't be doing. I don't need. I don't really want that anymore. I think people would be uh, amazed to hear you talk about Instagram, um, because I think to them you represent, uh, 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 you know, an an idol and a mentor in terms of photography. So I think to hear you talk about it. It's still the end. I did that the other day. I was talking to somebody and said, you know, I looked at that work and I thought it really sucked. And she, mm-hmm. and she said, you thought it was, you thought your work sucked? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I, it's so tenuous. That's what, that if I'm continue to get better, it's because there's doubt. Yeah. Doubt is what makes us move forward. Doubt is what makes us, it makes me yeah. want to get better. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have that doubt, then everything you thought would be great, you'd never go anywhere. <laughs> so I want that doubt, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I think Instagram provides it. But I do feel that. I do feel like sometimes I look at work, my, all my work and think, God, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, you you got to have that. I think that's what keeps people from, uh, you know, making one beautiful thing and quitting and... When you retire, you die, basically, more or less. So I think it's important to keep that kind of mindset, so uh, that you don't, you know, so that you don't brando out. Yeah. No. In the morning, when I wake up, I think about what I'm going to do that day, mm-hmm. and I'm really happy if I have something that I'm excited about. Yeah. And I'm really not happy if I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So I always want to be engaged in following that passion whatever it is that interest that would you say more days you are excited about what's going on because you i feel like you've been kind of uh interested and passionate recently so. yeah i think part of it is getting i mean i almost died a couple of years ago yeah. i mean last year uh-huh. i had this <laughs> i had a you know triple bypass and i just made it by the i was purely lucky to i remember to have found that i needed it on the widow maker right yeah no, I had no Widowmaker. That guy was gone. That valve, that valve was out of here. Which is another crazy story. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> the point was that I really felt the sense of mortality. I mean, everybody thinks they're going to die, but nobody yeah. really believes it. Yeah. It just, it's not part of your everyday. When it's part of your everyday, then part of what you're doing is every day is making sure that you're getting as much of that day as possible. So even if I'm not totally excited about something I will get engaged in it there's an urgency and there's a process that takes over and then things start to happen because I'm in process and Mm -hmm. I'm trying things and I'm always looking at everything I do and saying huh that's pretty cool that's what I wanted to work on next that's sort of how it works I don't think of an idea in the middle of the night or the driving down the street I, I don't think of something and go, well, I'm going to do that. No, it's based on what I've done or what I'm doing. And it's looking at it in a different way and seeing that there's a potential. And it's because I'm working that I'm, and I'm in, in the process of, of working an image or images that I make discoveries about what I'm doing. It's self-discovery in the process of creating work that, that kind of keeps me you know, excited and with the idea that I don't know how much time I have left. You know, at one point it was just 
X. <laughs> now it's like, well, it took, maybe your, it's, took you to your second heart attack to have a touch with yeah, mortality. Well, what about the first one? Well, that was pretty minor. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't going to die off. You're like, no biggie. Well, it was caught quick. It was minor. It was mm-hmm. a little stent and I was out. You know, this thing was like, buddy, I can't. They said, I can't believe you walked in here. Wow. So it just, you know, now I'm going, do I have two years left? Do I have four years left? Mm-hmm. Do I have eight years left? Do I have a dozen years left? Do I have 20 years? Can I live to 92, mm-hmm. 93? And you start to really make sure that, you know, what you do every day is important. You don't waste it. You don't waste a day. And so right now I'm working on, uh, I've got five things going at once. I'm, I'm, I'm doing collaging upstairs. I'm doing photographing going out. I'm looking at old negatives. Uh, on my uh, hard drives, I'm reprinting those. I'm doing layers. I'm going to photograph plants and do some more cyanotypes. You know, it's like it's um, endless. It well, it it's not always like that. Sometimes it's like, oh God, do I have to watch TV today? <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do? I can't drive around here anymore. I know every street <laughs> and everybody knows me. I think that's a good place to end for now. Okay. Until our next one. That was fun. Thank you. No, thanks you, man. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks you. Thanks uh, you. I like that. <laughs> uh, maybe it'll catch on. But um, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our future talks, and uh, and I hope everybody enjoys this one. How long is this? We just hit uh, two hours and 30 minutes. Oh, long. come on. Nobody's going to sit there. doesn't even feel like it, though. You're going to have it? to edit, dude. No, no editing. <laughs> All right. Peace out, dude. See you later. Dude, 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 pretty cool, right? It's, man, talking to him makes it sound not so difficult, not so complicated. He's got a really unique story. We really didn't get into everything that I wanted to, but I wanted to keep it uh, manageable and listenable for people who are just starting listening to this podcast. I really like the things at the end that he had to say in terms of waking up with something to do feeling a hint of mortality after uh, you know a few close brushes with death. We get into a lot of things in this podcast, and as always with every podcast, there will be notes. Probably should have said that at the beginning, uh, but yeah, there's notes. You can reach the notes at podcast, singular, P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot anti hyphen agency dot O-R-G. It'll be a episode listing of all the episodes up to date. And you can follow along there in case you want to skip ahead or see a link uh, for something that we mentioned. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Peace. Peace.